Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great Uh, this week, our guest is Rob Smythe. Rob is a freelance sports writer, uh, well known for providing minute-by-minute coverage of football and cricket for The Guardian, and he's also the author of numerous books, including Kaiser, The Greatest Footballer Never to Play Football, and uh, co-author of Jumpers for Goalposts, How Football Sold Its Soul, Danish Dynamite, The Story of Football's Greatest Cult Team, and, and Gaza Misses the Final. Thanks for coming on, Rob. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Yep. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to ho- ho- um, hand over to Tom. So what we're looking at today is an issue of shit from the 20th of June 1992 and it slapped by in the middle of uh, UEFA 92 and that is absolutely all over the issue. So on the front cover we've got uh, Basil Bolly and Gary Lineker uh, in the France v England uh, game from that tournament and uh, the big headline is give us a goal Gary, England draw blank again, direct from Sweden UEFA 92 Platt, McCoyst, Palmer, Goff, Walker. Colour action inside, England v France, Scotland v Holland, England v Denmark. And uh, there's a picture of uh, it's Frank Reichard and uh, Stuart McCall, Scotland's uphill battle. And uh, we always look at the price. Uh, so it's 55 pence. Uh, Australia, it's $2.25. Germany, it's four Deutschmarks. And uh, up in the corner, shoot is first with the Euro action. So anything leap out to you from that front page? Well, actually, the first thing was um, something Sanjeev Cody mentioned on his when he was on about the whole kind of news agent thing. You see the name top left, I think it's Gillen. Oh, um, so you know it was one where someone had obviously the equivalent of subscribing in those days had to go to the news agent to get it. Um, yeah, that was the big thing. The other thing, which is probably a bit kind of boring and journalisty, but I was thinking what a nightmare it is for a weekly mag during a competition with the Euros. So the date on this is the 20th of June, which I think is a Saturday. But from memory, you could get it, what, Wednesday, Thursday? Yeah, yeah. But of course, by the time it comes out, spoiler, England are out because they played the last game. And I noticed also they don't mention Scotland's second game against Germany, which I think was played on a Monday. So just that whole thing, it, I mean, it, you probably wouldn't care at the time if you kind of you absorb all of it, but it, it must have been such a nightmare for them to, um, yeah, publish deadlines and everything. That and then just... Um, yeah, just being reminded of watching England flail around, trying to score a goal against uh, first Denmark, then France, and then in the last game against Sweden. Yeah, as we'll find out inside, they're, they're pretty scathing of both you know, that, Scotland and that, England. In that really surprised me, actually, uh, how, um, yeah, we'll come to it, but just how critical they were of both teams, but especially of Scotland, given the kind of challenge they had and how well they played against um, the Netherlands. But uh, yeah, I guess we'll come to that. Yeah. Yeah, because again, we were handed another kind of group of death. Yeah. It's another tough group for Scotland. 
as was typical uh, in those days. So, uh, anything else, uh, Andy, there to say about that cover? Well, it sort of sets us up for for what's to come with the pictures because it's a very, very photo heavy edition. This magazine, you know, there's a lot of um, photographs from this um, from this competition uh, throughout the magazine, and it sort of is fixing us up for that. So that that's the other thing. Do you think that's related to the whole printing deadline problem? You know, photos are neutral and they're not, there's no point writing a piece about, for example, what England needs to do against Sweden. So maybe, you know, photos are kind of, a photo of Carlton Palmer's timeless. Mm. Well, maybe, maybe it goes back to what, what you said about the, you know, the fact that they would have had tight deadlines to get get the pieces in for this. So maybe they, they just couldn't go into the sort of depth that they needed to and, you know, to fill it out a bit. The photographs were there. Um, the as Tom will, will will touch on, you know that they're quite quite proud. And as the front page says, first with the Euro action, they're quite proud of be, actually being over there. And they make a wee bit of a fuss about that as well. So we turn on the pages then. So yep. pages two and three. So it's straight into it. Uh, this is coverage of England again. Shoot first with the big match action. It's goals or goodbye. England must sink Swedes to reach semis. And uh, a couple of really good pictures there, actually. Uh, a picture from behind the England goal of Stuart Pearce's uh, 30-yard free kick, which uh, I think it was a cannoned off the bar and went down sort of near the, near the goal line, which was about the best uh, the best goal chance. A picture of Stuart Pearce with his hands in his head and, uh, and there's a, a goal line clearance there, sort of despairing dive by uh, Chris Woods. Uh, only for Andy Sinton to uh, see if he's baking there by clearing off the line. Uh, and so there's a wee group table, uh, how they stand after two games. Sweden were top with three points, France and England two points, and uh, Denmark with one. So England at that point had two 0-0 draws against France and Denmark. England must beat Sweden to be certain of qualifying for the semi-finals. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I remember watching that uh, England England France game. I, I, I remember it being a kind of real sort of uh, tousy match. I remember it being quite a sort of exciting game, despite the fact it was a nil nil draw. Well, the the most exciting thing was Basil Bolly sticking the head on Stuart Pearce, yeah. um, which was just before. I, I might be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure Pearce goes off to get treatment and comes on, and pretty much his first touch is to belt that against the crossbar. You can imagine what was going through his head at the time, but. Um, yeah, do you know, the thing that stood out for me is what I didn't remember this at all, that disgruntled England fans taunted Taylor's team with jeers of what a load of rubbish. And that's a bit harsh. I mean, France, had, before this tournament, had gone unbeaten for about 20-odd games. England then beat them in the March in a friendly. But you think for two games, all right, two little draws. But it just seems a bit... Uh, you're in an eight, don't forget, you're in an 18 tournament, so this is already effectively the quarters. Um, so I was surprised that that was kind of associated with that level of kind of entitled hostility with mm. social media age and obviously it's worse now but I was that really stood out the France game yeah just I think it was a classic example of um kind of kick the can down the road both teams had drawn the first game France probably had the theoretically tougher games they'd drawn with Sweden the hosts England had Denmark who everyone thought were the kind of make weights and it arrived late so I think it was kind of don't lose rather than push to win and then put it all in the last match which it's kind of a natural instinct of the tournament, I guess, but it kind of backfired for both of them. Yeah, I don't remember much. I remember um, I sinted off the line there. I remember that. I think that was from Ongomar. Um, I think Alan Shearer, who'd only played a handful of games, if that, 
played and had a header just wide. Um, but the, the, the abiding memory is definitely Bob Basil Volley putting the head on Pierce. Yeah. yeah. I, I seem to recall after that game, like one of the commentators sort of saying to Stuart Pierce, because nothing happened to Bully. I don't think he got booked or anything. No, he didn't. It was completely missed. I seem to recall a commentator sort of saying, look, we were going to complain about that, Stuart. And he was like, no, don't. I recall that. He was like, eh. That rings but, a bell, actually. Yeah, it's classic kind of old school masculinity, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, I would have been, I mean, I, I've, I've never been massively patriotic. I probably was around this time more so than over time. But had he scored, that would have been one of the great England goals. Had he come straight off having been headbutted. And it was, I read, it was absolutely blistering free kick as well. And I think you're right, it bounces down. Nowhere near over the line, but it bounces kind of close to the line. Yeah, um, yeah it would have been fantastic. But yeah, I mean, the France team were were really fancy going into the tournament. I think they beat Spain in qualification. They had obviously Papin, who was absolutely electric, plus a lot of really good emerging players like Deschamps, Blanc, who was established. And they kind of just didn't do a lot at all. Papin scored two really good goals, obviously not against England. But um, yeah, they were, if England were disappointing, then France were even more so, probably the big, big letdown of the tournament, I'd say. Andy, have you got any recollections of that game or that? What first thing I want to point out is to just these are the wee things I like to see. So that that um, goal line clearance with Andy Sinton, what I love from that is the background and it's sort of ages. <laughs> yeah. it? Intel four eight six, and you know there's there's people born in you know a good age these days that won't have a clue what that that is. Um, I mean that was the <laughs> the the leading processor computer processor at the time. Um, which I think a 386 was the first one that I got. Um, I remember, you remember General Dealers? Up at, um, I... No, this is for Tom, this is in Glasgow. Oh. There was a shop called General Dealers just up um, near the Barras. And um, I, I, I bought a 386, a second-hand 386 from there, and I messed it up and had to take it back in and install it. Yeah, so it's it sort of just... That, that, that ages it for me, that Intel 486... But I'll be honest, the, the the whole competition, I I don't I don't really have an, I don't have clear memories of a lot of it. I think um, what would I have been doing in '92? So I think I was I would have been working at the time or at university and didn't really pay much attention to it. So probably the Scotland games, the England games to a degree, but as I say, no abiding memories that I can say this was a tournament that really stuck out for me um other than you know obviously who went on to win it it was so. it was the last eight team tournament as well so it was pretty kind of quick in and out in maybe two two and a half weeks um obviously it's grown since then but yeah i know what you mean i think everyone remembers it fondly because of the denmark story which was incredible but actually beyond that it wasn't a great tournament mm. there was a really good game between netherlands and germany um which obviously you We'll know about because Scotland eventually saved Germany, but yeah, it wasn't a classic by any means. And I suppose also you think of it as um, we'll come to this about the back pass change yeah. coming in. This is the last tournament before that, so I know kind of often people think Italian '90 rightly is the one that kind of caused all the change, but this is the last tournament before the change was actually implemented. And um, yeah, it was fairly, fairly defensive. It's funny, England. I kind of I'm torn on Graham Taylor a lot because he did make mistakes. He had so much bad luck with injuries. But then I keep coming back to the fact he left out people at Beersley Water. But I actually had a look at an 11 who weren't at the Euro. So this is either through selection or injury. So Dave Seaman in goal, Dixon, Pallister, Adams, Dorigo, who was left back for the Champions Leeds. A midfield, 
admittedly a slightly fan, fancy midfield of Waddle, Gascoigne, Ince, John Barnes, and then Beardsley and Ian Wright who won the Golden Boot. So, I mean, that's a hell of a team. I know some of them were, you know, would have picked Gascoigne, he would have picked Barnes, he probably would have picked Dixon. Um, but the rest of them he chose to leave out. I kind of, yeah, I'm always a bit conflicted because he was unlucky, more so in the World Cup qualification campaign that followed. But geez, he, you look at some of the players in, in hindsight, think how did they end up in a squad ahead of someone like Tony Adams or Gary Pallister or Ian Wright or whatever. Um, mm. And yeah, they weren't, England weren't great to watch, really. Well, who was it, Who is it that's in this magazine that says that about how um, Palmer and I can't remember who it was sent or something, um, you know, the, Taylor took them because they fitted into his plans for the team rather than being... Yeah. Although the interesting thing is, I think those plans were involved. I mean, I, just, I do like a lot about Taylor and he was, by all accounts, like an incredibly good man. But his plans were almost evolving too. He was quite open-minded, but he was almost too open-minded. So in this, in this tournament, he plays 4-4-2 in one game. Then he plays a sweeper. Then he goes back to, I think it's 4-4-2. He has three different right-backs. Keith Curl, Andy Sinton, who's a left winger, essentially played at right wing back. David Batty, a central midfielder. All the while, you've got people like Paul Parker, who played at Man United, sitting at home. He didn't make some really eccentric choices. I mean, I almost I almost think the Waddle Beersley stuff, while it looks stupid, I, I sort of get it. But it's more the choices around that, not picking emerging players like Paul Ince or Ian Wright. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just think he, he almost had too many ideas. A lot of times, you remember he famously left Gascoigne out in a game in Ireland and played Gordon Cowans. And again, I sort of get the logic. He'd heard that the Ireland players were going to basically provoke Gascoigne into getting sent off. But when you kind of put all these decisions together, they it kind of doesn't look great, really. Yeah. And when said that, of course, they were within, you know, a missed chance of reaching the last four of the Euros. So it shows margins are so fine, really. Mm. We're going to turn the page then and we'll see... Scotland over the page. <laughs> so the headline is Scotland the timid. Uh, now Roxburgh's boys must go for the bold approach. Yeah, kind of harsh, Rob, like you were talking. Oh, I think, I mean, you glad to know a lot more about this to me, but I, as a kind of casual observer, I think this is the best Scotland side I've seen. I wasn't old enough to understand, I wasn't even born in 74, I didn't understand 78 or 82, but I thought they played pretty well against Holland, were a bit unlucky, could have drawn... From memory, they played really well against Germany, who were the world champions and had added East German players like Sammer. Mm. Then they beat a really dangerous, useful CIS side, which in turn allowed Germany to go through. And this is before, looks like this is written purely on the basis of the Netherlands game, but you know, what are they supposed to be playing against? Hullet, Rijkaard, Van Basten, Bergkamp. And they're basically saying they're far too defensive. Um, it just really surprised me how, um, not vitriolic, but certainly how damning it was. I thought it was... Really harsh because it was a late goal, wasn't it, from Bergkamp that Scotland lost yeah. to? The thing is, I, th- I think at this period, probably Scotland's thing was a defence. That that was the strength of Scotland mm. at the time. Um, so I, you can absolutely understand why there was so many. You know why we did play so defensively like that. But, but even so, they had they had ball players, didn't they? Like McAllister, McStay. Um, I mean, certainly the Germany game, I remember, particularly at nil-nil, I remember them having two or three really good chances. But mm. even in this game, you're right that Goff was obviously... I always thought Goff was really underappreciated in England, actually. Um, just thought it was a world-class. Um, but yeah, just I mean, it's bloody Holland, for heaven's sake. What are they supposed to do? Play four-two-four and bloody press high up the field? Come on. Yeah. I was just going to say something we haven't... You know, it's unusual for us to have got this far into a magazine and we haven't actually touched on the strips. 
<laughs> yeah. at, this, at this stage. And um, you know, for for me, the the Scotland one here, um, blue blue shirt, white white shorts, and red socks is. Yeah, yeah, that that that's one of my fa- that that's probably one of my top three or four Scotland strips. Um, the the France one and the previous one was just it's outstanding. That's a classic Adidas um, style, isn't it? Who and, are the makers? Is it Umbro of Scotland's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's really nice. Actually, I agree. And I think it's I want to say this was the first tournament they started putting the numbers on the chest. Mm. That sounds about right. Yeah, that that definitely sounds right. I always I, these kits. You know, at the time, I always thought Italian ninety was a cut off point for when kits started to go wrong because Italian ninety was still kind of crisp and clean. And by this time, you get more like little fiddly bits. Yeah. But actually, the older I get, the more I really like some of these early nineties ones. I mean, there are some absolute stinkers. But as you say, France, the Adidas ones with the stripes over the shoulder, I used to be a bit wary about, and now I think they look so stylish. Particularly, I think you spoke about this recently in one of the pods, the Marseille one. Yeah. Um, but even yeah, I, I agree with you on Scotland as well. And actually, even the the um, Dutch one, I've got a bit of a soft spot for. Um, yeah. It's quite kind of simple and, I think and classic. Think... I mean, we'll come to some that are genuinely diabolical, but mm. I think these are all pretty. Are you, are you thinking the actually. Man United ones? <laughs> Particularly yeah. the away kit, yeah. <laughs> the goalie, yeah, yeah, yeah. So some good photographs there. It's a good one of uh, Richard Goffs uh, commanding in the air. There's so Frank Reichardt. He's towering over, but. Uh, what I like his hair. You can see his hair sort of it's yeah, kind of long, but it's got shaved down at the side, and I think just at the back. So it's got a kind of lion's mane effect. <laughs> I noticed that baby right has. Yeah, so there's more. a there's some yeah, there's some belting haircuts in this this whole mag, but yeah, that that is yeah, I don't even know where to start there. You're right, it actually doesn't look like a lion's mane, it's perfectly yeah. put. I, th- I think I think there's a few in that sort of period of time, there was a few close to being mullets, wasn't there? I mean, that's... Stuart McCall had one that was close to being a mullet. Um, yeah, you've got to try and have the best of both worlds, aren't you? Yeah. Have your mullet and eat it. But, yeah. was, it was it, I think, Johnny Vaughan says, um, business at the front, party at the back. So that's what a <laughs> mullet is. But, um, yeah, yeah. And the, 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 the picture you're talking about there, Tom, the one where Goff is, is towering over um, Rijkaard, it's reminiscent of the Alex McLeish one against England. You know the one I'm talking about, where he's up, winning a header, and it's against Stuart Pearce, um, Des Walker, and somebody else's three like really rough England, you know, powerful English players, and and Alex McLeish is just up powering through them all, and it's it's a remarkable one. I mean, it's it's just one player he's up against here, but it's still quite reminiscent of that. Yeah, I think uh, all of the, the pictures, I think, really give the impression that it was quite a bruising match. I think that all the sort of, they're all kind of quite action shots, they're all sort of rough challenges, I think, all of them. Yeah. So what about but the, the couple, of, that, that picture of golf and that, there's quite a good view of the boots there. Um, Puma for Rijkaard and Adidas for for um for golf, what about yourself, Rob? And and your, do you still play football? Do you play football? I, I, yeah, I, so funny enough, I was drawn to Rude Hill. It's Lotto boots in the smaller pick. I used to love those. I, I don't think I ever had any Lottos. Mm. Um, but yeah, I do. I play um, like a form of walking football. It's it's so I live up in Orkney, and it's when I came up here, I played football for about ten years. So I kind of got in touch with the local ledger centre they said well yeah we don't have any games that we, we can offer you, you join the walking football it's supposed to be over 50s but you can play anyway it's kind of it's turned into a free-for-all so 
it's not exactly high speed, but everyone kind of runs what they want. It's just, yeah, it's twice a week. It's the highlight of my week, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. At first, when we first started, it was genuinely like that Father Ted or that Still Game episode. <laughs> um, but now it's, it's it, well, it, it feels fast. It probably it probably still looks like that Father Ted episode, but yeah, it's fantastic. And I, but I wear, um, obviously, it's indoors, so I just wear kind of boring uh, Adidas. I had to, I've got, this is so boring. I got plantar fasciitis, so I spent ages yeah, researching yeah, yeah. the best boots to get for that or the best indoor shoes to get for that. So, yeah. But I, I, as a kid, I think I used to, the pair of trainers I remember most fondly are a pair of Deodoras I had, in, but maybe around 89. Um, mm. I don't even know why or kind of what kind of attracted me to those. But yeah, I, I, I don't remember what I'd have been wearing around this time. Um, yeah, how about you, lads? You, you always kind of stuck to stuck to one brand or... I mean, in terms of brand, I mean, growing up, I don't remember ever really being a huge selection of boots. But then again, even if it was, you know, we weren't um, we weren't blessed with the wealth to choose yeah, what we got. So it would have been your sort of Woolworths um, boots and things like that. But you know, whenever I've had a choice, I've always went with Adidas. Um, I've just always found them comfortable. They look good until. My last pair of boots, which I bought, which was my first ever Pumas, uh, Puma Kings, and they were absolutely outstanding. I didn't realise how good they were. When do, um, you'll probably notice from the magazines, when do coloured boots start to creep in? Because they're all um, all black boots here. Well, the early, early on, I mean, early 70s, maybe even just a little bit before that was the, the first of the white boots. Um, oh, okay. So you had likes of Alan Ball, there was um, Alan, Alan, um, we spoke um, Hinton, Alan Hinton, and then there was the Scottish players, um, a few in United. There's, we've got photographs of the Clay Bank team, haven't we? We're full. Yeah, players. technically the Clay Bank team were were first. Alan Ball was the first, but um, Clay Bank played so in the Charity Shield, uh, so the 1970 Charity Shield match, um, where he was actually playing in Adidas boots painted white with chevrons, so because it was meant to be Hummel boots, he was wearing. Um, <laughs> But uh, Claybank played a friendly on the Monday night against Aston Villa, where all the team bar one, uh, Mick Jackson, who used to play with Celtic, uh, wore, wore white boots. Wore white boots, uh, again white white hummels. Um, I meant to I meant to ask you actually, just on Claybank, what's the commentary at the start? I think I know the first two, Mill and Charlie Nicholas, but I know I know she'd slipped the Claybank goal in. I just wondered, <laughs> was it a famous goal? Well, not particularly. It's from sports scene, so Claybank were very rarely on sports scene. Um, we'd maybe be on sports scene maybe three times or something like that usually when other games were off mm. um, I remember one game we were on against Hamilton in the snow just because every other match was, was called off uh, but this game was against the Albion Rovers I want to see the Premier League was off that week maybe it was an inter- first like an international weeks but it was against Albion Rovers and uh, Clyde won 4-3 and that was uh, the winning goal in the in the, in the last in the last minute. Ah, so okay. just a, a very rare um, Clybank game where there's actually Archie McPherson. <laughs> that was McPherson commentary. Yeah, it was Ken, mm. Kenny Day was a player that gets mentioned. And yeah, who, who is it sets it up for him? Uh, Jim it's Hughes. Hughes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. The player of the match for me, or something. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We'll, we'll maybe change it. We'll maybe change it up for the. No, I think it's great. I, I think it's really good because it actually had me racking my brain. I listened back to it a few times and then, then picked up the Clyde bag and I thought, oh, that must be it. That's that's also why I've never heard it before. Mm. With with the with all due respect, sorry, that sounded bad. <laughs> but yeah, because I'm familiar with the other two. Um, yeah. yeah, just from old clips and stuff. Mm. 
But um, back back so the, about the boots. Um, mm. Talking about Hummel, Hummel were the really the first ones. Although I have seen white Adidas boots from back then as well. Um, but I've got there's an advert where it's the white Hummel, and there's also they look pink. They look sort of pink, but I think they're a, they're a sort of reddish pink. Um, but they're really nice ones as well. And I'm I'm thinking the Tommy. The Liverpool player, Tommy Smith. Tommy Smith, I think wore red really? boots. Yeah, I think. Oh, maybe very. Yeah, that would kind of yeah. profile, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's there, interesting. Yeah, there's one of um, Frank McClintock. Frank McClintock. Mm. So there, oh, okay, there's, yeah. there's a front of a shoot magazine, and it's the about to. They're sort of tossing up for for kick off, and it's him and Billy Bremner, and Billy Bremner's pointing down at him, laughing. <laughs> um, but as to when when the the colour one started coming. It's obviously later than this, and I, I, I don't really know a date that I can say that that's no, going to happen. It feels like kind of late nineties, but I, don't, I couldn't tell. I couldn't yeah. pinpoint it either. I think we, we've commented certainly way back on, on the show that maybe a couple of times where I think it was the bottom of the boot started being colourful before anything. Yeah, else. And kind of little touches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know. What's the most recent mag you've done, by the way? What would that have been? The would that have been. Well, we, we, the first one we did would have been 90, wouldn't it? But that's, we've oh, certainly done 90. We did 96 with, with Martin Billingham, because right. we had Martin Billingham, his latest novel was centred yeah. around Euro 96. So we did a, a Euro 96 <laughs> with him. I kind of recall that it was doing a later one I than... I don't think we have, yeah. 96 sounds about right, that, that one sounds about right. But then, then again, I, I have in my head, I've always had in my head, I say always, you know, people say that, but it's like, it's not as if when I was a wee boy, I had this in my head. But the cutoff for me, for nostalgia, is 1992. That's That's what I think. Anything later than that. And, and, I've, and I've got, you know, you can see the magazines and stuff behind me. I've got magazines later than that. that I, But I just, I don't really connect with them as well as I do earlier ones because it's full of adverts. It's, you know, it's... It doesn't have the same sort of feel as the magazines I remember growing up. So 1992 for me is what I sort of say. Right after that, for me, it's not nostalgic anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's just like I've I've seen people who get nostalgic about stuff in the 2000s. And I'm last like, oh, week, no, yeah. Come on, come on. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I think I mine would naturally be a bit later, more kind of late 90s. Mm. But yeah, I, I totally yeah, I could pretty take the point. Yeah. Um, and actually, it kind of fit to ninety two as well, because obviously, so much changed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I don't think it's related to the start of the Premiership. I, I don't think it's related to that. But start of the magazines and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think that just the the magazines changed at that point, or you mm. know, that's when I think that the cut off was. But you've got to have a cut off at some point, I think. You certainly do. Yes, you probably would have been exposed to more football mm-hmm. at that time. There would have been more football on the telly, and there would have been more coverage of football. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you just, I think, you know, it's like before life starts getting in the way as well. Yeah, you just say it, just everything, isn't it? Uh, so we can over to Carlton Palmer on the next page. Back at the back, Palmer finally returns to the job he loves. Some pictures of Carlton Palmer there playing against Brazil, probably in the uh, this uh, summer. A f- yeah, it was a friendly just before the Euros, I think, which I, I'm say completely forgotten about. I remember them playing them the following year in the US Cup. Um, but yeah, it was a friendly that summer. They drew one all, I think. Um, yeah. So th- there's a kind of quite a snidey wee caption there by shoot that says, uh, 
Because Shoot is the only football mag- magazine actually out in Sweden, but also the only mag able to talk to the stars of England and Scotland. So while others are filling their pages with stale news and secondhand gossip, we're able to go to the men at the heart of the action. It's another reason for sticking with football's biggest seller. It's a bit, I know, that really stood out to me. It's like um, football magazine version of the tabloid wars of the 80s, isn't it? I guess they have a dig at match. Would there be any other mags around yeah, that time? Yeah, I think that, um, that was definitely there. Yeah, they, they really push it, don't they, everywhere. Like the previous page, I think, says first for the action or something. Or, yeah, shoot first with a big match action. Um, yeah, kind of, <laughs> I don't know, just it stood out as the kind of thing you'd expect to see in a tabloid. I kind of. I don't know if you're 16 years old reading this, it's going to completely wash over you, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I did think it was interesting because you're right, it's kind of a, a big statement right in the middle of the, uh, the spread or the middle of the interview. So interesting wee bit uh, opening, Carlton Palmer is set to become a sweeping success for England and the role Ron Atkinson forced him to abandon. The 26-year-old utility man began his career as a centre-half in Atkinson's West Brom team of the 80s, but had to give up his favourite role following injury and one of Big Ron's notorious spending sprees. <laughs> so, yeah, I couldn't have told you that about Captain Palmer, certainly. No, I, I couldn't really. I remember, I remember, obviously, he played quite a lot in the middle. For, I'd forgotten he played. I knew England played a sweeper against France, but I'd forgotten it was him. Um, but it sounds like he played pretty well. I mean, he's obviously kind of short. I, I feel like he, him and Jeff Thomas are kind of shorthand for the worst of the Taylor years, which is a little bit harsh. I mean, he was clearly pretty good at, what he did, which you know wasn't particularly creative, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I sometimes feel a bit sorry when you know when they those worst England teams and him and Thomas always appear and they always show the chip. You think, yeah, they're still ultimately if you played five aside against someone like him, he'd make you look a right prick all day long. But <laughs> yeah, he actually from memory, he I thought he did okay in this tournament. Um, and I think when England failed to qualify subsequently for the World Cup, I, I don't think it was particularly his fault. Um, and everyone says they should have played more creative players, but ultimately you do have to have a balance. I mean, the midfield was always going to have Platt and Gascoigne when he was available, which he was for the World Cup qualifiers. So they needed people like Palmer and Paul Ince. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if being too kind on Palmer and maybe he was just as crap as everyone remembers, but um, I think he did it. From memory, he did a decent enough job within his kind of obvious limitations. Um, and actually, at Sheffield Wednesday, he was very good. They were a really good side around this period. Finished third, I think, in 91-92. Were in the title race till the penultimate weekend. The following year, they got to two cup finals, lost them both to Arsenal. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't think he was as bad as people remember anyway, put it that way. I think, I think a lot of it, and, and it probably touches on it in here, and even read comments nowadays about it, you know, just the style of play, probably people giving them grief simply because his style of play I hate to use the word but gangly leg yeah no I agree with that I think the fact physically and I mean it might also be a race they're getting that time I don't know but certainly mm. the way he ran and everything he was very ungainly I do agree I think that was part of the reason there was so much kind of criticism yeah, yeah there's a bit in that article there that says yeah, he was also affected by criticism from those people who disliked his ungainly style yeah. and the fact he couldn't pass the ball as well as some players because there's an interesting wee bit there where he, where he talks about uh, his, his his nerves and how he, he he worried about whether he could whether he could perform uh, properly on on the pitch and um, talks about his his mental approach how that's improved. Yeah, that surprised me actually because have you heard him 
be interviewed recently. He's on a few podcasts and stuff, and he's the most confident man in the world. He just basically he talks about people criticizing him, and he just kind of used to tell them, "Yeah, look how much I'm earning," and so on. Um, they couldn't give a toss. Really, he used to call out Letizia on getting fewer caps than him. Um, so it surprised me to read that he used to suffer from nerves that much. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe built up a shield over time because he got so much abuse. I don't know. Yeah. So what do we think of that England uh, shot? I think it's quite a smart England. Yeah. Week. So this this is still the 1990 lot, isn't it? Still, still the same kits, I think. Because mm. they've got that little kind of the collar, you can just about see it, and it's the same with the one Lineker's wearing on the front. Yeah. yeah I think they're pretty nice, and then they go into they start to get a bit. Um, Ugly. They, they, I think they had a blue kit around this time, which wasn't so good. Um, that they may have worn in Czechoslovakia when they played them before the tournament. But um, yeah, I think they did pretty nice. Umbra around this time were kind of really big players, weren't they? Yeah. They, they obviously they come late to them uh, signing up Man United or Man United signing up them, whichever way they put it. Um, the, and I remember having like, Umbra drill tops around this time. They're a really big thing um, and kind of slowly faded over the towards the end of the 90s, I guess. Mm. But yeah, I, I quite like it. What, what do you think about the Brazil one? Yeah, I mean, the, the sub-Brazil? It's, it's, it's not all great. It's, it's all right, but... Yeah. I, I, I seem to think my, my my younger brother may have had one of those um, from mm. that time. Um, but what I was going to ask is the... Is that England top the same design as the white one, but just in red? I think it is, but only because of the collar and the bit around the arm as well. I'm pretty sure it is. I couldn't. I wouldn't swear to it, but mm. I think it is. The um, reason the reason I ask is because I I didn't particularly like that white one that was on the previous ones, and I didn't think it was one of England's better ones. But I like that red one, and it's fascinating if it's the same design, just how making it a different color. Just, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It and it's also fascinating how often the association leads to the memory of the kit. Like we'll come to the Denmark one, I think later, which I really like, but. When I look at it objectively, I think it's kind of hideous. I think it's just because of the association. Whereas the '86 Denmark kit is kind of a classic on both counts, visually and the association. But mm. yeah, interesting about being—I don't know—I'd have to check, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same design. Yeah. And something I touch on as well a lot is this—the shape and size of kits. So you can mm. see at this point, even the Brazil one and the England one, they're, they're getting pretty massive and, and, and shapeless as well. And also the fabric is changing, isn't it? Because you think of um, Socrates in 86 with that lovely topper kit and kind of massive sweat patches. Mm -hmm. I assume it's much more cotton than polyester in those days, mm -hmm. uh, but also really tight to the skin. But you're right, yeah. You can see them kind of billowing. And I know Palmer was pretty skinny, but you can see it on all the players. Even I think it's Ray in the bottom right, I think. You can see it kind of billowing a bit on him. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right, we're good going over the page then. Over the pages in advert. Uh, the first uh, of more than but of what about two adverts for Umbro. This is Umbro trainers. Umbro trainers look good on the surface, whatever the surface, and it's a kind of uh, mix and match picture of different Umbro trainers showing uh, astro turf and I don't know. It looks like looks like green bays from from here. <laughs> rather, rather, so it's a sort of sort of brick. Uh, and uh, it, this this confused me to begin with. I, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Yeah, course. same here. I wasn't sure what they were boasting about. Um, but actually, I, I think I missed the different type of surfaces thing. So the, mm. the, the, the sole of the boot. 
Um, but yeah, I kind of get it now. But I actually that completely passed me by. I read it and thought, yeah, that, well, yeah, I wasn't entirely clear what they were talking about. Yeah, and it, it, took, it took me a little while to actually realise it was a, a composite of three different books as well. I just thought actually, that's a bit yeah. strange. You know, then, then it, it did. Was, I printed this off in black and white, which didn't help, but I'm now looking at it on the screen in colour, and yeah, I can kind of see yeah. it a bit better now, but yeah, no, I was exactly the same. Yeah. There's also the ball, it's it's soaking, soaking wet as well, I guess. Yeah. You can play in the wet with it, yeah. But yeah, so that's the that's the, 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 three, the three surfaces, indoors, astroturf, asphalt. Interestingly, Tom, it's, it's, you don't often see adverts and I guess they've done it deliberately, where there's no mention of price or anything like that. It's just advertising the items. And, and there's, there's nothing that says, see your stockists or whatever. So so they're obviously relying on the brand, which, you know, would have been huge at the time. It's just a case of, right, here we go, this is what we're selling. Now go away and find it in, of your own accord. Yeah, yeah I suppose you create that, that want for the, for the item. My recollection is that Took Umbro a while to sort of do trainers and uh, and uh, football boots. I, you know, I, I think like Umbro had the strips, like the Scotland strip mm. and all that in the eighties, but they didn't do footwear. I don't think till maybe this, maybe the early nineties. Do you know? What? I, th- I think I think you're right. Because I, th- I recall having when I was at university, I had a pair of Umbro football boots, and yeah, I don't re- I don't recall. Now you've mentioned it, I don't recall much in the way of Umbro boots trainers of that prior to this sort of period so maybe yeah you're, you're probably about right early 90s yeah the same actually i had never thought about that but i associate much more with just yeah obviously kits but also like i was saying drill tops and stuff like that tracky tops um yeah it's a really i hadn't really thought of that but yeah i have the same kind of feeling mm. you know what i just is a wee bit of trivia uh roger bannister ran the first four minute mile wearing uh, an umbro kit Oh really? Yeah, apparently so. I'm surprised they don't make more of that. They should be doing it every year, you know, selling. You yeah. know, they bring out all those vintage things like the New Order and the Factory Record stuff. Um, yeah, I'm surprised they don't do that with Roger Bannister. Yeah. Uh, right over the over the page again, then. So again, this is another. <laughs> as if we hadn't had enough of England's not being very good. <laughs> another two pages on uh, just not good enough England. Shoot, gives it to you straight. So, and this time there's some uh, photographs from the nil-nil draw with uh, Denmark. And like you were saying, Andy, there seems to be a lot of just a filling space. There's three uh, England crests there down the side of the page for no real reason. Oh, that's, uh, and, sort of uh, three lines, except it's now nine line lines, isn't it? And uh, again, some good some good photographs, <laughs> good action pictures there. Uh, Stuart Pearce and... Uh, Aye, there's, there's a, again, Chris Woods this time being saved by the, the post. This time, no Andy Sinton in the line, but uh, John Jensen's shot bounces back off the post. Uh, and a good one there, a Keith, Keith Curl, um, sort of resorting to shirt pulling. John Jensen yeah. is, is somebody that I'm, I think it was this tournament that I just remember. He kept on trying long distance shots. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it, you're yeah. like, just stop it. And then he. He delivered, didn't he? He delivered. There's a, there's a really nice um, film called, called, I think I'm probably going to mispronounce it, Odette Vadenmark, which is, and it was Denmark or something, but it's all about 
Danish football from about 82 to 92. So it takes in the Dynamite team in the mid-80s, but also this. And there's a lovely little montage of exactly that, basically. And they do it really, they put it together really well. It's a bang over the bar, bang, miles away. And there's something like John Jensen, please, when the context was something like that. <laughs> then, of course, you get to the final and he gives him a lead with an absolute screamer. Yeah. And so he almost had, like, the, the whole thing with his Arsenal career when it became a standing joke, he almost had that squashed into two weeks at the Euros. Um, yeah, it's quite funny. Is that a documentary? Robert. Yeah, one I got years and years ago, a lad I know Denmark sent it to me. It's like this is going way back, like 12, 13 years. But yeah, basically, it's just a documentary of that kind of golden period. It's really, it's really nice actually. Because the, the, there's a feature film of the... yeah, which I haven't watched. Um, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. Oh, is it good? I, 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 I probably should actually. Um, but yeah, I watched originally. I watched that documentary because I was researching. Yeah, like a, a long piece on the dynamite team, which then later, a few years later, became a book. But yeah, um, it, but it included '92 as well. Yeah, that, that always stands out to me the way they cut the montage. It was quite, I mean, it was kind of fairly kind of simple cutting, but it worked really well. Just bang, bang, constantly belting it into orbit. Um, <laughs> yeah. So can you? So the shoot doesn't mention the the Denmark players there, but can you tell us anything about the the Danes on show in those pictures? Yeah, I mean they were fairly prosaic team compared to the 80s. I mean, obviously, we don't see Peter Schmeichel here. He was the, probably the star. I actually, the, the big picture appears challenging Fleming Poulsen, who I think is such an underrated player. He had a really good career at Dortmund as well. Just a really clever mobile forward. Was perfect for this team because they played a hell of a lot on the counter-attack with him and Brian Laudrup. Um, yeah, really intelligent, good movement, run all day, good with the ball, Um I tried. I was trying to work out who the guy at the bottom challenger on Smith is. I think it's Lars Olsen, one of the centre-backs, but I'm not certain. Um, the one big pullback by Keith Curl, I'm pretty sure, is Henrik Andersson, who was the left wing-back. And he's quite an interesting one because I don't know much about him before or since, but he had an amazing tournament. He looked so good. Like one of the best players of the tournament. But then he got one of those horror injuries against Holland in the semis. I think he fractured a kneecap. Mm. Um, and there's a, there are pictures of him just like screaming and it looks like something out of a David Cronenberg film, you know, like his mm. knees kind of bubbling and pulsing. It's really awful. Um, I've always meant to actually look up because he did look, he looked absolutely world-class, but I don't really know much about him before or after. Um, yeah, they were, I mean, they were a fairly, fairly kind of straightforward counter-attacking team in a way. I mean, they had probably a guy who was emerging as the best keeper in the world, two world-class forwards. The rest of them were just kind of, for want of a better phrase, kind of good on his prose, really. Um, but but it worked, and they and they had also um, Henrik Larsson was a bit of a fairy tale because he was kind of an, an unknown midfielder who scored twice against. Let me think. He scored once against France when they beat them to go through, and he scored twice against the Netherlands in the semis. Um, and I think he actually ended up. I think Villa took him on loan the following season in the hope they could kind of have a bit of that magic, and it didn't really work. But yeah, I would say the stars were Schmeichel. Henrik Anderson in this tournament, and certainly Paulson and Brian Laudrup. And there were also some great kind of individual stories. John Yemton, obviously. Kim Vilfort was a really kind of poignant story because his, um, his daughter was dying of leukemia at the time. So he was flying back and forth from Sweden to Denmark to be with her, and then he scored in the final. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the... Yeah, that, that, that feature point. film uses, uses that... Uh, yeah, that, does it use... Because there's always, there's always some stories around them, and I don't know how much of it is myth... 
No, actually, it's true. One is about them playing crazy golf, I think, on the day of a game. One was about them going to either... I mean, it's, it changes from McDonald's to Burger King and back, but... Yeah, the, no, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, were, I mean, it's so interesting. It just shows... And I know football's a bit different now. It's a bit even more sophisticated. But even then, there was so much that went into planning and preparing. And you can have a team who were kind of preparing to go on holiday. We didn't even qualify. Turn up. First two games didn't look a lot. You know, they yanked it at the post against England, but England were probably a better team. Beaten fairly well by Sweden, even though it was only 1-0. And then they win three games, won them on penalties and win the tournament. It's just, it just almost makes a mockery of all that preparation and everything else. Um but it's such a yeah, I mean, it's such a lovely story. It's interesting that Euros produce these stories more than the World Cup. You think Greece probably less charm to Greece because people didn't like where they played that much, even if in reality they weren't that much different to Denmark. Really, um, it feels like there's much more scope for it in that tournament than there is in the uh, the World Cup. You have we've never really had a kind of crazy winner of the World Cup in the way we have in the Euros. Yeah, so there's a quote there at the start of this from uh, Graham Taylor where he appears to be channeling Ali McLeod. Yeah, yeah. He says, uh, sit back, enjoy yourselves, and watch us win it. You know, I'm surprised more that hasn't gone down into history the way Ali McLeod has. But I do remember it at the time, not thinking a lot of that. And it's you see it repeated occasionally, but not very often. I mean, this is obviously contemporary, so it's still in people's minds. But you don't really read about it much now as one of the great um, errant statements of our time. Yeah. But yeah, he definitely said it. I, yeah, I do remember that being a thing at the time. Uh, okay, so uh, we move on then. Yeah. Now, so we'll go with the first page here. We've got Ali McCoist, uh, Marco's my hero. And again, they're making good use of these crests. There's uh, a Scotland crest and a Dutch crest there. And uh, so picture of Ali McCoist and uh, a wee uh, cut-out picture of uh, Marco van Basten. So Alan McCoist may be Europe's golden boot winner, but even he admits to being in awe of the impressive lineup of hitmen at the European Championship. The Scotland star has been in seventh heaven this week, just being on the same pitch as Jurgen Klinsmann, Rudy Voller, and Marco van Basten. The striker Ali rates as the best of the lot. So yeah, you can't really argue there. I think van Basten was class at that at that time. Yeah, yeah, it's, and we know obviously what happened. It's kind of sad, isn't it, how quickly he went after this. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you two actually about McCoist in international football and especially at major tournaments. Was it too much a step up, or was it just that the kind of they didn't get enough service, or the circumstances were wrong? Because um, I mean, I guess particularly in this tournament, this is the peak of his club career, isn't it? Around yeah. this period, yeah, absolutely. When he's winning the European Golden Boot and stuff. I think it's, it sort of touches on it that Scotland weren't very creative at this point. You know, and then that that didn't. Alan McCoy was a natural goal scorer. He he was scoring any any situation really. I think I think if if he got more um more balls to him, you know, he he would have scored more goals. So I think a lot of it's to do with. I, I don't think it was a, too much a step up for him. Um, so he's not. It's not like he's missing chances or anything. He's just not getting them. I'd, to be honest, I, I I couldn't tell you that sort of detail. Um, it kind of feels that way, certainly. Mm. I don't remember it being. Well, what's what was the state of play with him at Italia ninety? Was he around then? Yeah, he was. Yeah. But who so who would they have had? Who else? Fleck. Well, yep, yeah, uh, Alan McAnally. McAnally. Oh yeah, of course he played against Costa Rica, didn't he? McAnally. Yeah, Boris Johnson. Oh, so God, there, yes. there's a sto- there's a story um, that I think it's Ali that tells it. Um, there was Mo Johnson. And um, who was it? Roxburgh was the manager at the time. Yeah. And, yeah. and he came in 
to the team and says, right, Mo and Ali are starting. And he thought it was Mo and Ali, <laughs> but it was Mo yeah, yeah. Nally, Mac and Ali, so he, he sort of <laughs> that one. That's a decent set of forwards, though. When you add someone like Gordon Jury as well, who also was a really good player, it's a decent group of forwards around that period. Mm. See, I, 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 I sometimes, I, I get carried away myself with it, things like that. And, and I sometimes wonder, at the time, were they as good as, you know, we think they were? Or, you know, were they possibly all at their peak at different times? But because it's in the past, we've maybe placed it all together. I think, yeah, I think there's such a tendency to do that. I mean, I was thinking also about the, the group of Forge had in 86, people like Nicholas and Archibald, but actually they're just not their peak, are they? Mm. There's a time when, um, there's a time when Man United had a midfield and front line of Giggs, Keane, Skulls, Ronaldo, Rooney and Van Nistelrooy. You look at that and think, geez, that is out. But they were crap yeah. because Rooney and Ronaldo hadn't matured. The other lot were either past their best or having a slump. Um, so you're right. It's, you, it's so easy to forget when you look back at kind of where people were at that moment in their careers. Hmm. And well, I mean, even the, there was a period of time where Kenny Dalglish was yeah. wasn't good for Scotland. You know, was getting or people weren't wanting them dropped or you know. And, and you think Kenny Dalglish that ever happened to Kenny Dalglish? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. We we tend to remember the best, don't we, rather than the kind of the the, the average periods and the poorer periods, hmm. definitely. But at this time, I think Tom, it's um, McCoyce would have been the European Golden Boot holder yeah. at this time. Yeah, I think it says that. Yeah, in the article. Yeah, <laughs> the, the the very reason that they then changed the the rules <laughs> behind it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that when they added like a so his only his his goals are worth half or something? <laughs> For God's yeah. sake! Yeah, I, I love the photograph, Ali, because I don't know if you've ever seen the film A Shot at Glory. Rob, have you ever seen I, that? I haven't known. So I'll, oh, I'll, I'll, what's I'll, it? Tell us, tell me about it. So, so it's, it's um, Alan McCoist is the, the main the main lead, um, and there's Robert Duvall's in it. He's the other one. So I mean, it's, it's straight from that you're like, what? yeah, yeah, what? yeah, yeah. But it's it's a McCoist is a is an ex Celtic player of all things, and he's now playing for a, a, a small club who, you know, there's an American investor. And basically, they go on this cup run, um, meet Rangers in the final, and you know, all sorts of shoe for. I, I, I'm a fan of it. I, I, I like it. I've, oh, I've it's not a terrible film at, at all. Um, what sort of period was it made? It was made '99. So cause oh, okay. I, I, I went along to do an extra at Hamden for the, oh. the final when they, when they, when they, because Kilnocky, the team, get to play Rangers in the final. Uh, so me and a few of my mates were at Hamden Park mm-hmm. uh, as as extras, as making up the crowd scene. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, partly based on what was happening with Clyde Bank because Clyde Bank were getting shifted to Dublin. So that's part of the story as well. Michael Keaton, as the American owner, is going to move Kilnocky to yeah. Dublin, uh, and then Robert. De- so Robert Duval was about in Scotland a lot. Yeah. Uh, he was hanging about in a. In, in Glasgow and at the BBC bar and stuff like that f- for a while, you know. And there's a sort of infamous picture of him when he gets stitched up at the, the 98 Scottish Cup final between Rangers and Hearts, where somebody handed him a, a scarf to hold above his head, and it's a, uh, it's an Ulster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, He's holding up and said it was a Rangers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there was a lot of, sort of footballers of the day, but Owen Coyle was in it, mm. uh, Didier Gatz uh, in it. 
Yeah. Brian uh, Cox was a Rangers manager, so I mean, that's... Brian Cox, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's worth a watch. That's, that sounds all right, yeah. yeah. Does. And actually, McCoist is not bad. And mm. what's it called again? A shot, a shot of glory. Let's yeah. scribble that down. Man. I had in my head that this was going to be rubbish. I watched it, and what I liked about it, how many um, football films have you seen or just sports films where the action's never that good? It's never, it oh, doesn't yeah, have the intensity. So bad, yeah. Now, the, the, the action scenes, the football scenes in this, I think are really good. They're a bit slower than you would expect from, you know, real football, but it still yeah. feels like real football. Yeah, I, it's just the, the, the photograph here, it's, the, there's a few sultry shots in the movie of you know whether they're getting light and on his eyes and stuff like that, <laughs> and that, that's what this photograph here reminds me of. I mean, it's odd that after his playing career, you know, he didn't go into management. He went, he done that film uh, where he was, he was a lead in a motion picture, and what I say, he's actually no bad in it. And then he was a chat show host because it was McCoy and Macaulay did a, a chat show in BBC Scotland for for a few series, and he did that before going into man, managing Rangers like several years later. And to my knowledge, I don't think he's acted in anything else since. Hmm. Uh, even though I think Robert Duvall was talking him up for the Hollywood kid <laughs> <laughs> about that time, you know? Yeah. Okay, so next, the facing page is another ad- advert for Umbro. And not the last advert for Umbro that we'll see in the magazine. Uh, and it's the greatest football kit in the world. <laughs> uh, and the Premier League Europe and the world waits, but you don't have to. The new 92-93 home and away kits are available from the Manchester United Superstore now. And uh, there we go. Here is the new Manchester United home kit and the absolutely disgusting away kit. <laughs> the two goalkeeper jerseys modelled by Peter Schmeichel. So what, what are we rating? Yeah, I, 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 I don't mind the home one. Aston Villa had a similar one, didn't they, with the laces around the neck. Yeah. Or in the away one. Is indescribable, really. It's <laughs> so it's they had blue around that tire. I can't even begin. It, they've got like flecks on it, but the worst part, I think, is the fact they have the badge like half the badge is all the way across. I, I, I can't even describe it. It's, it's just it's, awful. it's like a post Frank, isn't it? It's like a, a <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, Frank. exactly. Yeah, but um, yeah. no, I, th- I think without that, it would have been, yeah. I, I don't like it, but but with that, yeah, exactly, it, just, it, yeah. it turns it into what the hell is that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not good at all. Uh, I'm trying to think if they wore it much. I think they wore it when they won at Liverpool in early March, which was like a really big win on the way to the title. And they might have to have it worn it a few times because then they introduced halfway through the season they introduced that Newton Heath one, the yellow and green mm. halves, which I actually really liked. But um, that was in the yeah. same style as the home one with the. Yes, exactly. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So that came in mid-season. I'm not entirely sure why, but I think they. I think they first can, wore. I think we can uh, see why. I think we can see why. Well, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the thing is, they wore this one after because they wore the Newton Heath one at Chef United. I think in mid-Feb in the cup. Then they'd have worn this in March at Liverpool. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, the other thing actually, and again, you'll probably know more about this, but it feels like this has appeared when goalkeeper kits were starting to get really just. Bad, just a bit too kind of the equivalent of a clown mask yeah um obviously the the nadir is probably david seaman at euro 96 but these two for schmeichel they're not great really do you know i was, I was gonna i was gonna touch on this because i had a, a goalkeeper strip of this period that was very similar 
So it was, it was more similar to the dark blue one, but it was it was sort of black and dark colours. So the the pattern wasn't really. So it was like blacks and oranges, dark oranges. So the patterns weren't as obvious as that. But yeah, that was the that was the style at the time, including the high round collar as well, um, mm. which was which was the style. I was I was just back to that that away strip. I mean, it's it's light blue. It's it's Man City colours, isn't it? In yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's slightly darker, but yeah, I suppose it is. And they'd had the one before that was blue with the, I don't know how you would describe it. The funny one with the kind of blue and white little kind of chevrons. Um, but they'd always, yeah, I suppose it is closer because if you go back to the eighties, the blue they wore would definitely be a lot darker and a lot richer. Mm. So nothing like City. I've never really thought about it in kind of City context because there's this. More a sky blue, but I see what you mean. Yeah. The other thing I've noticed, which I've forgotten about, is the shorts on the home kit, which aren't great either, with that big umbro yeah. symbol around Mark Hughes's modeling it around his left thigh. Um, yeah, that doesn't look great either, really. Hmm. I was looking at the shorts on the away one. I quite, I don't even know what it is, whether it's a badge or something. But on the the what do you call it, the top of the shorts, there's there's something I quite like that. It looks like a little clip button or something, doesn't it? Yeah, it's really, it's really pointless. But I know what you mean. Yeah, I quite, I do quite like little details like that. I think the problem around this summer was just too many of them or too much going on. But but I agree. I like little things like that. It just kind of make it ever so slightly different from from the normal space. It's just personal taster because they probably think on the home shorts that having the umbro thing serves a similar purpose. But yeah, yeah no. I'm not but sure that, it does. that's the thing about about kits that we spoke about quite a bit is. They become classics depending on the success yeah. that they get. You know, you can have the worst kit of all time, but you associate it with a cup win. So it's like, mm. yeah, that's a that's a great kit, greatest kit of all time. Is there an, is there an example from Scotland that like that that is particularly iconic purely because of what the team did? Um, I'm trying to think, like the Aberdeen and Dundee United, their kits were pretty good, weren't they, in the eighties? Yeah. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I can't think. Of actually, to me, yeah, no. I, my my knowledge of Scottish kids isn't that great, but the ones that come to mind actually are all pretty decent. Celtic and Rangers is only so far wrong you can go, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you know yeah. what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that one away. That, that's that's a good. Uh, but I, but I do think Denmark is an example, which is in this issue. Denmark hmm. ninety two. Like, I I would happily wear that walking football, but it's not a good kit. I know that objectively. Purely because it's just the association. Yeah, and I guess back to English teams as well. Well, Norwich City, we had that. Yeah, the infamous one. The bird shit kit, as it yeah. was known, which is kind of associated with them all almost winning the league. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you know they had a kit just before that? They 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 challenged for the league along in eighty eighty nine for quite a long time. Around that period, they had a lovely A six kit or A six as they pronounce it, mm. but it goes for so much on eBay now. Um, but I think it's one of the great kind of forgotten kits. It's worth looking up. It's it, it's either eighty eight to ninety two. It might be eighty nine to ninety two even. Is, um, but it, it looks so good. Is this a yellow with the the green? Is it? The yeah, green, green yeah. It looks really, really good. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I have no affiliation to Norwich, but I'd love to. Mm. I keep. I've kind of given up trying to get it cheap on eBay because people <laughs> clearly have alerts. So you get excited. It'll be on for ten quid, and within four hours, it's up to like eighty quid and rising. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the great forgotten kits of the modern. I was going to say the modern era, Jesus. Yeah. But yeah, you know what I mean. But you look at the... I don't know if you were going to touch on this, Tom, about the prices. I mean, 
the prices are starting to shoot right up, aren't they? As well, I mean, thirty pound for for the 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 shirts, um, shorts for thirteen and eighteen pound, um, you know. So that wasn't cheap. When when you when you sort of compare it to fifty five pence for the magazine, that's that's a huge number of magazines you'd be paying for that. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the start of the, you know, what we were saying earlier on, how the England shirt was getting the same as in 1990. Uh, England, England shirt, but now this is the start of kids yeah. changing every season. And, the, I mean, that home goalkeeper top and away goalkeeper top, I mean, you never had them in the goalkeeper uh, top, you know, you never had a home and away. I think United led the way with that, didn't they? Particularly with away kits, once the Premier League era started, it became kind of a standing joke about how often they changed them. I think the home kits for the first few years were every two years, but the away kit would then often have two different ones every season. Um, excuse me. So, yeah, they definitely led the way with that, certainly in England anyway. I don't know if led the way is the right term, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that struck me is just I'd forgotten all about the um, the way you ordered these kits. I mean, it's it's obvious now, so it was at the time, but, you know, you fill in your name, your address. I always remember, or it feels like I remember, like really trying to, write my address as small as possible but still make it legible on these little forms that you had to cut out and you had to cut them really clear, carefully. Um, and even things, I'm just looking at it here, name, address, postcode, daytime telephone number. If you're a kid, what are you going to do? Put your mum's work number or something? I mean, put your school number? I, mean, I don't know how that worked. But mm. yeah, it's, it's uh, stuff like that. It's such a time capsule, but it's quite mm. funny to actually see it. So you forget all about the kind of how not inconvenient but just just normal at the time just the way we actually bought i always remember my mum had to travel for ages to buy the denmark 86 kit for my brother um i think she must have bought I, I can't remember i know she had to go a long way like at least 30 40 miles and phone places and everything um and now you think it's so easy to buy anything you like um yeah it's a different world i guess so, yeah. so what, what is the connection with denmark rob nothing really my brother was so I'd have been 10 in 86 and I watched what I didn't really, I was quite a late starter really in terms of properly being invested, but my brother always loved that kit. Um, and then I kind of, I've, the more I kind of went, found out about the more interested I became. And um, when I was at the Guardian, when I first started, I met a guy called Lars Eriksson working there, from Copenhagen. And we got chatting about it and it just, yeah, it just became more and more fascinating. Really. It just seemed such a good story. Mm. Um yeah, just that's it really. Like all, you kind of dig a bit deeper, find out a bit more. Um, so originally we did a like a long article for the Guardian in two thousand nine on them. Went down pretty well. Thought well, maybe we should try and do a book, and then we eventually managed to get a publisher. And just yeah, one of the best times of my life really, being in Copenhagen. And they were so accessible. That's the other thing. The players, mm. even even Michael Lauder. I mean, it seems I still doesn't seem real. I <laughs> sat in Swansea for an hour with Michael Lauder. Genuinely. I know people said it all the time, but it just doesn't. Um, but yeah, the players who were in Copenhagen were so accessible. Uh, yeah, just such a fun time. The more you just kind of, the more you found out, the more interesting it became, and also the more fun it became, just to um, kind of get to know the characters and everything else. So it wasn't. I do remember them at the time. I do vaguely remember, particularly my brother getting this kit. My mum kind of all the trouble she went to, but I didn't kind of I I didn't experience it. The '86 team this is at the time really, but it just something I'm kind of found out more subsequently and it's interesting because I remember 92 and I love 92 and I wouldn't have thought then that I would find the 86 team far more interesting because 92 they won it they had Schmeichel who I really liked at the time um but yeah just the 86 team and just 
yeah, I just think they're kind of endlessly fascinating, really. Mm. All right, we're going over the page again, Andy. So, yep. um, so well, we'll, we'll uh, just dispense with the third Umbro uh, advert. Uh, which is just a big picture of the Manchester United shirt and it says Manchester United have seen one of the biggest names in football and looking at the picture you would think that is Sharp as the Sharp logo is just right in the middle of the page the biggest thing on it but no uh, Matthias Collett Careca Baggio no Umbro official kit supplier to the world's greatest teams uh, yeah and it's quite a smart looking picture of the Man United close up of the Man United shirt yeah and on the left-hand side of the page is an absolute, just a page filler. <laughs> it's a feature called Here Today, Gone Tomorrow, and it's compiled by Steve. <laughs> and it's basically old pictures of players and managers uh, and hairstyles that they no longer have. So I think we can, we can probably pick out a few of the faces there, Ian Porterfield, yep. uh, Leo yeah. Brady. Les Seedy, number two, I think. Andy Ritchie, number 10, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah it is. Steve Archibald, obviously. Jack yeah. Charlton, Brian Robson. Yeah, John Burridge is an absolute belter, though. That is a number Is five. that Burridge? Yeah. Is Burridge number five? Yeah. Oh, my God. That, that looks like a judge's wig that someone got bored with halfway through and just stopped. Yeah. stopped. I didn't realise that was him at all. And it says that uh, Teddy Venables and Howard yeah. Kendall. Yeah. Kendall Liam yeah. Brady, obviously. Is that, it's number 12. Is that Don Howe? I think mm. it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some are more, I mean, yeah, some are more striking than others. Yeah, five's a belter. I suppose, yeah, ten. Andy Ritchie looks a, makes me think a bit like of Jaws from the uh, James Bond film, the way he's smiling there, but, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, though, that, I mean, I don't think Andy Ritchie's hair looks too bad, and neither does... No, no, a lot of them are actually just, and... the, yeah, yeah, a few kind of frizzier <laughs> efforts, but, you know, they were kind of standard for the time. Yeah. Yeah, five is John Burridge is definitely one that stands out to me. Yeah, yeah. I'd put it in Steve Archibald uh, pretty close. <laughs> yeah, but it's not just the, the hair and the mustache, it's the goalkeeper top with this mm. Apollo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> goalie chart as well. That, that very, um, you, you've seen these old um album covers, you know, that are, are you know, <laughs> and stuff. I actually did a, I actually used that photograph years ago on, on an album cover. <laughs> um, sort of, that's brilliant. I sort of put it in. It, the, it was sort of parried on. There was like three sort of Christian or whatever it was American Deep South sort of looked to it. <laughs> yeah. So you can imagine what that might have looked like. <laughs> right. So uh, we're going over again. So this one uh, is, ladies and gentlemen, Shoot is proud to introduce the new Des Walker who is also the old Des Walker. So uh, another nice picture of the England uh, away kit. Uh, Des Walker is squaring up to the biggest test of his life without the man who turned him into one of the world's greatest defenders. For the last 10 years, Forrest boss Brian Clough has been the inspiration between Walker's rise to the very top. But now Des is coming out of his shell and preparing for life without the man he still refers to as Gaffer. So this is Des Walker moving to Italy. And there's a wee picture of him there uh, in his uh, Sampdoria shirt. Uh, Sampdoria will be expecting Des to look after the best of the opposition strikers, says David Platt. 
He will be up against players of the quality of Van Basten, Papan and Viali week in, week out, and will be told, mark them out of the game. So, yeah, uh, Rob, so Des Walker at uh, Sampdoria. Yeah, it's a, a sad story, this, because it kind of didn't go very well, did it? I think he ended up playing at left-back quite a lot, which is just wrong. I mean, he, I, I think he's one of the most underappreciated England players, certainly in my lifetime. I think... His good period, and it didn't last that long. It'd probably be about 88, probably to him going to Sampdoria. I thought he was just immense. Italian 90, he's arguably his best player. I know we all romanticised Gaza for obvious reasons. I, I thought he was, I don't know what you think. I thought he was so, so good. There's a lovely bit. I've watched the semi-final a couple of times, and there's a bit towards the end of extra time when, um, and it's only a small thing, but Klinsman heads the ball beyond him and he's got a start on him and you think that they're in trouble here. And he just he's just so fast, so comfortable, just goes back and clears. He just looked brilliant. And he seemed made for Italy, particularly because of the whole man marking thing that Platt talks about. Um, you'll never beat Des Walker and all that. Apparently he used to sing that, he used to kind of sing that in Gary Lineker's ear. You'll never kind of gently you'll never beat Des Walker. Um yeah, but it just didn't go very well. He I think he played at left back. I think I'm not certain about this, but I think part of the problem was. Pietro Viekovod, who was the kind of ageing stopper who'd been at Sampdoria when they won the league, was supposed to be moved on, but actually he ended up playing till he was about 74 or something ridiculous, but certainly that survived longer than they thought. So Walker was shoved out to the left back and it just wasn't. That's not where he played. Um, yeah, and I think he was back at Sheffield Wednesday within a year, certainly within 18 months. Uh, I was never the same player also. I think there was talk of an injury as well. He um, During the next season, so his first at Sampdoria, he had two or three high-profile, not even errors, but just kind of vulnerabilities with England. Overmars skinned him for a penalty in a really important World Cup qualifier uh, against the Netherlands. It would never have happened before. Um, and he kind of went from being one of the best centre-backs in the world, which I think he was at this point. Even at the Euro, he had an excellent Euros with England, um, to very quickly becoming just a good kind of Premier League, eventually Premier League centre-half. Um which is a shame, really, but I think if I was picking an England team for players at their peak in my lifetime, I would probably have him in. Uh, I think he really was that good, for, for, only for a short, from about 88 to 92, like I say. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought he was tremendous. I don't, know, I don't know what your memories of him are, though. He couldn't play football to save his life, by the way. I'm talking purely defensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's another reason why he shouldn't be a left-back, you know. Um, yeah. Even their left-back wasn't as attacking position as he is now, but um, I mean, he talks about it in this, actually, that club. Uh, kind of wanting to be encouraged across the halfway line and stuff. Um, but, yeah, that was clearly wasn't his strength. He was just a brilliant, brilliant one-to-one defender, really. I remember um, when he did move to Italy, I've, so much was made about his pace. It seemed as yes. if, you know, that that was that was his thing. That was a, the, the one thing that he had that would stand him apart in Italy. So, yeah, as you say, it didn't work out very well for him. But, you know, it, you- it was a period... Of time because you had Gazetta football attack. It was it, it was a period of time to be over in Italy, I suppose, in terms of getting. Yeah, and actually, I think Platt because Platt did well. Platt had been the previous season at Bari. Bari were rubbish. I think they were relegated, but he'd done pretty well. So I think that Gasco had obviously agreed to go. So I think it became more um, more of a kind of acceptable idea for English players because they were generally quite reluctant after Italian ninety. There were loads of examples of people who were almost bought, but no one actually went. My favourite one is that Steve Bull was approached by Torino and turned him down partially because he said he misses English breakfast, which I think is tremendous. Um, but a lot of them were like Walker, Barnes almost went, Lydica almost went, Gascoigne 
almost went almost, and eventually they did. Yeah, there was such fascination to see how they would do because Serie A at that point was the best league in the world mm. by a mile, probably the strongest domestic league there's ever been, I think. Um, so there was such fascination. It was kind of a bit sad that Walker felt like a sure thing in the way that Platt didn't, even Gascoigne didn't, because partly because of his temperament, partly because he's a creative player, so you can, you know, there's kind of no guarantees. With Walker, it felt like it kind of was guaranteed. He was just a brilliant defender and then didn't work out. It, it was genuinely, I remember that Overmind thing being genuinely shocked to see him skinned by someone at a really, at a really important moment as well. And then they went on, um, they went to Poland and Norway and you went to a stake in Norway, that infamous game they lost. The whole Duana like that period. Um, but I think I didn't realize this at the time, but I'm pretty sure I read that he got some kind of injury that did compromise his pace, not a huge amount, but just enough to make turn him from world class into kind of just a good or very good Premier League player. And the fact when he came back, wouldn't have been that old, but he went to Sheffield Wednesday, I think, who again were a good side, but I think it kind of told a story as to the level he was at. I'm pretty sure he played his last game for England under Graham Taylor. I don't think. Venables ever looked at him and he wouldn't have been that old at this point, maybe 30, 29. So he faded really quickly, which, yeah, kind of sad, actually. I always really liked him. Mm-hmm. You spoke earlier on about the, the Marseille strip and looking at the other team. What which team is that he's up against? That he's going Do you know, on? I wondered about that. I mean, my first thought was USA, but it can't be. I, I've got a fear. Is it fit? They played Finland just before the Euros. Finland's a good show. I wonder yeah. if it might be that. Yeah. It has to be that period. It has to be close to the 92 euros they didn't play yeah it might be finland i don't know yeah i mean the other t- i was sort of thinking of bulgaria but they're green and red yeah. or something weren't they the the stripes they're on it yeah and then i was thinking maybe a goalkeeper but there's no no any gloves on it looks yeah it definitely looks like an outfield kit yeah finland's a first that, that would be our first i'm not certain but they played what check they played czechoslovakia but i'm pretty sure czechoslovakia were red weren't they and england would have played in that blue kit yeah, I guess I'd say Finland, but I don't know. And the uh, facing page there, they've got he'll take Italy by storm, and uh, Paul Elliott. It's Paul Elliott is the only British, the only other British defender to have played in Italy. The Chelsea favourite spent two years at Pisa before returning to Britain in 1990. Let's get a good picture there, uh, Elliott uh, playing for uh, Pisa. Talking of kits, by the way, Serie A around this period. I mean, they're just so many glorious kits. I mean, even that Pisa one, which is fairly functional. I'd still happily, I'd love to wear that. But around, particularly at night, there's a website somewhere that has all the 1990, 1991 Serie A kits. And it's just, just fantastic. So we did the Inter with Misura and obviously all the AC, the AC Milan ones. Juventus with, I think it's Upim then. Um, Sabdoria, which we see here, which is pretty much the same kit as the one where they won the league. Um, yeah, I think that's probably my favourite, if I could kind of, choose from one era of kits or one period of kits one league it'd probably be that I think mm. um, yeah even the kind of mid 80s you know Maradona is the obvious one um, yeah so good alright are we over Paige no here we go I'll hand it over to I'll hand over to you now Andy yep so we're going to jump out the magazine Rob and we're going to do a focus on yourself so get ready for some questions these are the hard hitting <laughs> questions they're not really uh, full name uh, Robert Allen Smythe. What's your birthplace? Uh, it's King's Cross in London. Okay. What was your first car? I've never had one actually. I never learned to drive. I had one driving lesson and kind of quickly realised 
what's a good idea. Well, there we go. What what car was it you had your one driving lesson in? <laughs> you know, I can't remember. <laughs> okay. I just yeah, remember it's, it's my, my first, mother's disappointment. Is Robert first known driver? Andy? Um, well, it may be as well. Um, I would have to I would have to consult the archives for that one. Yeah. But yeah, that that's. Um, favorite player of all time. Uh, Roy Keane. Favorite team. Um, I, I kind of grew up supporting Man United, but I also have a soft spot for teams like Denmark, which I mentioned. That also um, the Sabdori team that won the league. I've always really been fond of them. Okay, what's the most memorable match that you've witnessed, either in person or on the telly? Um, it would be the FA Cup semi final in '99 between um, Man United and Arsenal. The game where Giggs scored that famous goal, but it's kind of more about the whole game. It was just kind of, yeah, the best game I've ever seen, I think. Okay. And what's been your biggest thrill in your life? Um, God. Professionally or personally or both? Both. um, Let's go for, yeah, both. Whatever. Well, professionally, so I I helped or ghostwrote an autobiography by a cricketer called Robin Smith, who was my hero growing up. Um. So kind of meeting him and doing that, yeah, it was like just a huge thrill. Personally, I have no idea. Probably the same. Okay. Uh, what's been your biggest disappointment? Crikey. I kind of, that's, I, I think more in terms of kind of regrets than disappointments. So regret obviously being something you're responsible for. Disappointment, I don't know. Um, so but by coincidence, I had two books published in April 2014. And... Um, my mum died like a few days before both were published, which uh, disappointment's the wrong word for your mother's death, you know, mm. but you know what I mean. Yeah. I kind of wish you'd been around to kind of see some of that and just so celebrate it and stuff. Yep. Okay. Uh, what's the best country that you've visited? Um, pr- probably Japan. Um, yeah, I absolutely loved it. They were in 2015 and um, yeah. God, I, yeah, I'd love to go back. Was that for work or was that for? Play? No, just to me and my fiance went. Uh, yeah, just amazing. Uh, just, it's just, I, I kind of find it really hard to describe, but you know, it's, it's so vibrant. Mm. People are so decent. It's just, it's just kind of inspiration. It's just a better way to live, I guess. Yeah. Okay. What was your favourite food? God, I have a really kind of boring palate, so probably just the thing I kind of miss. This is not being near London. There's a steak restaurant called the Hawksmoor, and they have, well, they have steak, obviously, but with their bone marrow gravies, one of the best, probably the best thing in the world that I've eaten. So, yeah, I kind of miss that. I genuinely thought you were going to stay, say steak and chips there, number. No <laughs> well, well, effectively it is, but it's, it's steak and triple cooked chips with bone marrow gravy. Okay, we'll take that one. I'll take that. Miscellaneous likes. So, give me two things that you like to do. Um,. Well, yeah, probably walking football. Um, just, um, I don't know, kind of older you get. I just, I like sitting at home, kind of watching episodes of Would I Lie to You or something like that, my fiance, and just, yeah, I like that kind of peace and laughter of that, I guess. Do you do what I do and just watch the same ones over and over again? Yeah, and... we've got to the point where now we say, yeah, yeah, we, the, the only the, the kind of rule is anything with Bob Mortimer, and you can watch it as yeah. many times as you like. Yeah. Any of the others, we've kind of got a rule, maybe, you know, four or five times is enough. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bob Mortimer's ones, you can just, yeah, could watch yeah. this forever, really. Absolutely. Love them. Love them. Miscellaneous dislikes. So give me a couple of things that you that drives you up the wall that you don't like. I get, I get probably disproportionately annoyed by kind of internet comments and the more kind of extreme 
stuff there, Twitter and everything else. Um, I don't know what else really. Um, just I, I get sometimes the more kind of hysterical sports coverage gets on my nerves, probably more than it should. Mm. Um, you know, like stuff like transfer deadline day, things like that. I should probably, I should probably just let it go. <laughs> it's not for me. It was never for me. Uh, that's fine. I should yeah. let it go, really. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, favorite TV show of all time? Uh, Sopranos. Okay. That's yeah, kind of like a lot of people, I guess, mildly obsessive about that. Could just watch that on loop for the rest of my life. Yep, great show. Favorite singers, or you can have two singers or bands. Yeah, I don't know. It kind of changes so often. Like, so when I was younger, I used to be absolutely love Radiohead and listen to them, and I still do. But um, I actually, I, I thought about this and I looked at the most played songs on my iTunes, and it's um, what was it? it was Sister Savior by The Rapture, which surprised me a bit because I like them, but I don't like them that much. And then it was I can't remember the others. Um, yeah, just all I'd like. I did. I did kind of recently. This is a bit bad. I've recently discovered the associates, which is a ridiculous thing to say. But I kind of, you know, I was too young at the time. They really, uh, yeah, I could kind of listen to them a lot at the moment. And yeah, fascinated by Billy McKenzie. But I don't, I wouldn't say I have a, like a particular favourite, really. You know, you know that wee story about uh, Billy McKenzie when he got dropped by his, his record label? Vaguely. I, I'm, I'm in nowhere an expert. He was in the, the office and, and uh, he got told he was being dropped by his, re- his record label. So he was like, fair enough. He said, so he's like, can I get a, a taxi home on account? And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. So obviously this is his big record label in London. And he gets a taxi and he's like, wait, <laughs> And he got a, got a driver to drive him on the account all the way from London. He didn't do it. <laughs> Fantastic. There's a book I keep meaning to try and get hold of actually about his life. But yeah, I only, I stumbled up, I, I kind of knew, I'd heard of them. I'd heard part of his too, but I only stumbled across them when there was a programme on BBC Scotland a couple of years ago what was it called i forget it was an eight part series anyway about scottish music from about i'll wrap it up that's exactly it, yeah which i always go back to it's on the planet that's it i thought it was fantastic i mean some of the stuff i knew like you know mogwai and orange juice but less familiar with some of the other stuff it was really good yeah yeah and i just love white car in germany which i i don't think i'd ever heard became mildly obsessed with sort of incredible right. um, particularly for that period of time you know i just thought how could we be doing that in the late 70s but yeah, yeah. I think there's a couple of Billy McKenzie documentaries on YouTube. Yeah, I watched one actually around that time. I forget what it's called, but I keep meaning to try and get hold of the book as well that some guy had done on. Yeah, yeah. See, but when you're talking about Radiohead there, because they're one of my favourites, and the thing that always gets me when I tell people that, the ones that say, oh, but they're really depressing. Now, I've never listened to Radiohead and felt depressed. It's... No, I no, I no, I agree. Even even the more kind of melancholy mm. stuff, I just find it more beautiful than anything. Yeah. There's that famous Father, Father Ted sketch, isn't there, when he he's on the bus and he's suicidal oh, and exit music comes on. But but particularly since kind of post post OK Computer, it's not really. I'm not even sure you can make that argument, can you? Yeah. So they're depressing. I mean, the odd song, you know, they're, they're kind of beautiful piano song. But again, I don't think it was depressing. It was mm. more beautiful than anything. Mm. Okay, moving on to favourite actors. So, a couple of actors. And um, after 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 you get to see a shot of Gloria, one of them will obviously <laughs> yeah. McCoy. Alexander McCoy. And um, <laughs> I don't know, I feel like everything's back to the Sopranos, really. Just probably watch it more than anything. So, I would think of Gandolfini and Edie Falco. But uh, I actually, I, I really like um, Mark Bonner as well. I, I absolutely loved Gilt when I saw that. And he's someone as well I wasn't that familiar with till 
because I had to do everything in line of duty. But since then, I've seen him in things like Shetland and yeah. his own thing recently, like a documentary where he grew up, which I thought was brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I like him. But, yeah, probably, you know, most of the Sopranos, like Gandolfini. Michael Imperioli, I've always been kind of fascinated by. I found it really interesting. Um, yeah, that lot, that lot, I guess. Yeah, there's a period where Mark Bonner just started to appear everywhere, you know, and he became, yeah. oh, there's that guy again. Oh, there's that guy too. Oh, yeah. Know who he is, Mark Bonner. You know? But also, he's a, he tends to be a really good kind of guarantee of quality, I think. Mm. Um, there may be exceptions that you know that I don't, but yeah, everything I've watched with him in has been really, really good quality. Yeah. Yeah, we had um, Neil Forsyth on a while ago. Who wrote. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, he wrote, yeah, yeah, of course. Um yeah, I absolutely love it. I, I still haven't watched series two, actually. I've got it on the planet. I must find time to watch that. Yeah, I thought the first one was brilliant. Yeah. Okay, um, question. Who's your best friend? Uh, it, it would be my, my fiance Jay, I think. Um, but my best kind of male friend would be a guy I went to school with called Gavin Monks, who I'm still in touch with. Um, so, yeah, those two. Okay. Uh, who's been the biggest influence on you? Uh probably on my mum but professionally um a guy called tim delisle who was like kind of the person who inadvertently got me into journalism by putting a kind of note in the editor's notes for cricket mag asking for people to do work experience and then i got to work under him for a while and i just but it was a perfect time it was really early in my career and so many good habits he's a genius the best editor i've worked under by by a mile um so he writes about cricket mainly, a little bit of football as well. Uh, but yeah, I would say him professionally, definitely. Okay. And final question, which person in the world would you most like to meet? I was going to say Roy Keane, but I just think I'd be shitting myself. <laughs> so um, maybe I, I do really like Michael Imperioli, the guy who played Christopher in The Sopranos. I listen to his podcast and I'm really interested. He's a, does a lot of meditation and Buddhism, which I'm not really kind of a more inquisitive about anything but i find it really interesting so yeah i'll probably say him okay and he just seems really sound as well mm. but i think that was the last of the questions over to you Tom. i'm glad about that <laughs> well I, I was going to ask you Robert, but one, one of the many things you're involved with is uh, the guardian's uh, newsletter the, the fiverr uh i, I was just going to ask because the fiverr gets a language all of its own <laughs> Were you part of the sort of creation of it, and is there a, is there a certain type of writer that can that writes for the the fiver? Um, I, I certainly wasn't part of the creation. So the, the main credit for that there were a few people: Paul McKinnis, Sean Ingle worked there. This is before my time, but I think it's mainly Scott Murray, um, who is the biggest genius I've worked with, certainly in terms of funny sports writing. So he, I think, developed the language for that and for the minute by minute stuff that was kind of so good and so robust isn't quite the right word, but I can't think of a better one, that it was kind of passed down without being passed down. You know, there, I, I don't think I've ever been in a meeting where we've spoke, people have spoken about how to write the fiber, how to write a live blog. But I think he created, he, not just him, but he was the leader, I think. Created something so strong that kind of, people kind of just picked it up almost through osmosis, you know? Um, so I remember excuse me, the first day I worked in a garden, big ass to do it. And I was kind of terrified and, but you just kind of, yeah, I don't know, you get more used to it. I'm just being in that environment, you kind of pick it up. Um, yeah, it's really interesting that it's been going on nearly kind of 20 years now. It's just seems to be doing pretty well. Um, but yeah, I, I genuinely think it's a testament to his genius. 
Um, a lot of that website, actually, the tone was, I mean, obviously things evolve and things change and the world changes, particularly with, you know, th things are less kind of frivolous now and things like that. But I do think the, the essential tone is, is the same. And that's because what he created was so strong um, that people just pick it up. With, yeah, I, like, I genuinely can't remember being in a meeting where people spoken about, obviously there'd be times when people would say, this didn't work, this did work. But generally people are just left to kind of do it through mm. what they've learned from reading it. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it definitely, so I first did it in 2004 and by then it'd be going at least, I think three, four years. Um, yeah, no, Scott Murray, it's like, he just, he should be, he should be a consultant to kind of every sports journalism website in the world, really. He's that good, I think. Um, but yeah, it's definitely his work. Uh, the other thing I'm just going to ask you about was uh, uh, Kaiser. How did you come, <laughs> how did you come across that? So that, oh, gee, yeah, I mean, I, I got quite lucky with that, really. They, um, the, so the people who were doing a film on it, um, they were looking for someone to write a book to go with it, and they approached among other people, Donald McRae, who's a famous interviewer with The Guardian. Um, and he was working on something else at the time and couldn't do it. I think it might be Stephen Gerrard's autobiography. And he suggested they get in touch with me. So I, I got really lucky with that. Um, and then I met him. Yeah, just, yeah, that was just, yeah, that was so strange. And kind of still is, actually. Kind of, I'm still, even, what's it now, if I had a five, six years on, I still haven't a clue of half of what is true and what isn't. Um, it was really weird. I mean, that, talk about thrill also that like a couple of trips to Brazil, you think that kind of shouldn't happen to people like me. And that was, yeah, that was great. But it was also, there was a really fun time actually on the second trip when we were almost doing, it's the closest I've ever got to being a private detective, uh, kind of trying to track down people and potential and what work out what happened, what didn't. And because it was so confusing. Um, but yeah, that, that's how it came about really. It was originally, uh, just through the the people who did the film, which I would absolutely recommend to anyone. It's so good. It's so well put together. Um, yeah, they wanted to book to go with it, so that's that's how I got involved. But it wasn't I wasn't involved at the start. I didn't kind of discover or anything. Uh, I remember hearing about it, kind of like anyone, really. You kind of think it can't possibly be true, and then you kind of the more deeper you get, you think, well, actually, some of this clearly is true, but you don't know exactly what is, what isn't. Um, yeah, it's a unique story, I guess. Yeah. But a lot of it, the strange thing is, with some parts clearly, some of the stories clearly are complete fabrication, but a hell of a lot of them are true. They just, they just are. The fact that even the um, one of the people who did the film, they spoke to people like Pepeta and Zico and everyone else, and they all knew about Kaiser, and they all told stories about Kaiser, um, you know, uh, Renata Gaucho and Ricardo Rocha and people like that, people who won the World Cup. It clearly, a lot of it happened. Uh, I have no idea how or why, but it, yeah, it did. charity partner this season is the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. 
You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share Group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. Right, so back to the magazine. So now we're on to the letters page and it's uh, Greavesy. And uh, get a good picture of Greavesy there reading some of the letters. Um, so this week's star letter comes from John Mallon of Lodge Street, Willenhall, West Midlands. And he wins a pair of Mizuno Europe TP boots. And it's don't forget the fans. Alex Ferguson moans that the new TV deal has ignored the most important people in football, namely the players and managers. Rubbish. The most important people in football are the supporters. Which we know now is absolutely no true. <laughs> uh, but Greavesy says, absolutely right. Professional football only exists because people pay to watch the game and the players receive a percentage of the gate. If there are no supporters, those players soon become amateurs. The fans are the most important people in football, but this new deal has totally ignored them. The chairman have taken a very short-sighted view because they expect fans to cough up £300 for a satellite dish and pay increased admission charges at the turnstiles. The punters' wishes have been overlooked for 25 years now, and the day is rapidly approaching when even the most fervent supporter says, asterisks, 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 to football. I think, I think um, getting a bit recent, I think we've just seen that this is still the case, that for, for some football clubs, it's not about the fans. And, of course, I'm referring to Wraith Rovers. I don't want to get into too much on here. Um, but that, that's just an example of totally ignoring the fans. Um, so it's it's been going on for, when was this, 92? So 30 years, 40 years, 30 years, I can't count. No. 30 years. Yeah, 30 years. Yeah. You know, I, I think you get to a certain age, I'm the same, and you realise you start to lose perspective. So I'll often look back and think, it was 23 years ago today, in 1989, I think, no, that's not right. Yeah, <laughs> that happens yeah. loads to me now. Yeah. But you're right, it's, it's so interesting looking, and one of the things I love doing is looking at newspaper archives for research, but the amount of times you come across an issue you think is a recent concern, like, you know, you, you find something in 1939 talking about players are earning too much or whatever. Yeah. And it's really, it's almost like depressing. You think, you, you feel like, these are new valid concerns and we're right to be really irate about them, but actually it's been going around forever. I know, obviously, I guess it accelerates a bit more, but yeah, even this, I mean, this is certainly, what was it, Brian Glanville in World Soccer, used to always call it the Greed is Good League, the Premier League. Um, and it's completely right. I think at the time, as a kind of naive 16-year-old, I didn't really see it that way, just probably drank the Kool-Aid a little bit. Um, but then you kind of realise over time that, yeah, that's exactly what it was about. It was about just money and the land grab a bit. 
But actually, one thing, Fergie's very critical at the start of this era about the Premier League. He wrote a book in 92 called Six Years at United. Um, and there's a bit in that as well. And actually does talk about the fans being sold down the river. Um, and famously, I think United's first, yeah, their first Premier League game was away at Southampton on a Monday night, which isn't, you know, the easiest train journey home. Um, so he did talk about it in that. But yeah, it sounds like at this point he was more concerned about the impact on the players and um, and himself. So any other letters we've picked out off these two pages? Yeah, just the Italian, the Italian mob stood out a bit. Um, I keep reading how the Italian league is the best in the world. Yeah, every time I see the games, all the players have been diving, cheating, uh, diving, arguing, and cheating, says Graham Locke from Hornchurch in Essex. And um, Greasy says, AC Milan are probably the best team in the world. And occasionally you see an exceptional piece of skill. But overall, England fans wouldn't tolerate, English fans wouldn't tolerate Italian football. It's highly negative, produces few goals, and it's frustrating to watch. In terms of entertainment, our league is still the best in the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. I think Serie A was incredible around that time. Um, but it's just interesting that that really was the attitude at the time. But, you know, diving cheating was a foreign thing and didn't happen over here. And I, I know there's an element of that, that, you know, more foreign players, more normal it became. But you can go back 20 years to France's Lee winning 15 penalties in a year or whatever it was for Man City. Um but also, I don't buy that you see an occasional piece of skill. I mean, Serie A at the time, I thought was fantastic. I used to absolutely love watching it. Um, yeah, I remember it used to be, used to be t- almost tucked away on Sky Sports because obviously didn't have Premier League then. Um, but yeah, I, thought, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I thought it was fantastic. Do you know, I, I think I think Greavesy had an axe to grind with Italy. That's a really good point. Because um, I've, I've seen loads, of, I mean, it's not as if he's... He puts the boot into a lot of things, but he's he's put the Italian football down quite a lot over the years in this, and yeah, I, th- I think it's based on his yeah. experience of, of playing there and not succeeding. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Mm. So the the one I've picked out is not for crosses. Um, too many players waste potentially promising situations by hitting their crosses too high, too long, or simply behind the goal. One of my pet hates, in fact, when I was watching the, the Edinburgh Derby just last night, it was like there was a few examples of it, and it's like they just want to hit the ball in a sort of um, Ronaldo type way into the box, or David Beckham, they want to, you know, the ball to do the movement and things, just put it in at the ball, put it in the area, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, I think that they, they, they focus too much on making the ball difficult to defend rather than putting it in and letting the the attackers make it difficult for the defenders. So again, once again, something back then, it's like, oh, this is a problem. And today, it's exactly the same thing. As much as, um, you know, technically, you know, you could argue that the players are better nowadays and the balls are maybe a factor, but it's the same thing. They just overhit it. Um, you know, things that they do in training day after day, they just can't do when, when they're under the pressure of an actual game. So that's the one I picked out from that. Right, and I know there's uh, there's one about the back pass uh, rule there as well. We're going to look at that in a bit more detail in a minute, I think. Also, uh, sorry, Tom. The Robert Fleck is that the the kit you were talking about, the Norwich kit? Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. Um, well, it looks like it's got more stripes down the right. Oh, his left-hand side, yeah. our right as we look at it. Yeah. What I'm thinking of, I think, has only got them on the his right side. 
Right. But yeah, it's essentially that. Yeah. I, but I actually, think... that's interesting. I don't remember it being different, but yeah, that looks slightly different. Um, but it, but it's kind of very similar to the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Tom. So yeah, just just down that uh, the right hand side panel, there's latest videos from Spurs. So this is kind of year when teams were starting to put out sort of uh, end of season videos kind of thing. So there's two videos with Gary Lineker on the front there. Um, there's a one called Goals of the Season, 91-92, and another one called Lineker, Simply the Best, the world's number one striker, £12.99 plus posting packaging each. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned a few times about how, you know, Spurs were one of the teams who were doing the merchandise to quite an extensive degree before before others. I mean, they were they were including brochures in the shoot magazine, you know, like 20 pages worth of, you can imagine the, the sort of tat that was in a 20 page um, football <laughs> merchandise magazine, um, you know, jewellery, uh, babies, bibs, things like that. But Spurs were always one of these teams who were sort of ahead, ahead of the curve on that. So it's no surprise to see them there. Did you have any t- football videos, Rob? Yeah, I used to love all that, particularly around the kind of late 80s, early 90s. They, I think some, it might be Chrysalis, a company who did all the ones for the top flight English teams. So they would have their end of season video, then they'd have goals galore and saves galore and race for the championship. I think they went from 88 to 92. So I used to love those. And then just you get random ones, you? like soccer superstars in the 80s, where you'd have like three goals from Frank Stapleton and then three goals from, I don't know, Mark Hughes or Liam Brady or whatever. Um, yeah, I used to absolutely love all that stuff. And then I think when Serie A took off on Channel 4, they had a load as well. Um, do you remember Italian 90? They kind of really milked that. There was kind of England's glory, Gaza's glory. Then they the kind of review the whole tournament and everything else. The one thing that always struck me about those is how incongruous it was when you had commentary that was clearly dubbed on after. I just... I. It's probably overly nerdy, but I just I couldn't enjoy it. I just knew that that wasn't the real commentary. Particularly when you had the same commentator who'd done it live, and you kind of knew it because it was in your head. But then they would have to, for whatever, for right to reasons, they'd do it again, and they'd almost do a, a like a tribute act to it. So they'd use part of the same commentary, but not. And it just it was used to. It made me realize commentary is such an integral part of a memory of it. Not from when you watch it, but from when you watch it back again and again and again. Um, so then when it would come on, because I used to love all those homemade videos, you know, um, I've still got one somewhere of Euro Night 2, actually, uh, just all the goals and the BBC and stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I was great. Just lap that stuff up. Uh, right. Okay. So uh, over the page again, then. I don't know, so this is Platy's Great Eight. Uh, so this is um, David Platt picking out players from Euro 92. Uh, some great names. There can I really argue with? Does anyone want to pick out any of the players that he's chosen? I did well. I mean, you're right. Most of them are world class players, but it's interesting. Towards the end, you kind of feel like he's struggling a bit, and you almost feel like he said to his ghostwriter, "Just put anything for this guy." <laughs> so for so he start with Gary Lineker, Marco van Basten, Jean Pierre Papin, Thomas Brolin, and they're all really kind of precise tributes, kind of quite detailed and quite smart. Ali McCoyst also. Then he gets to Ben Christians in Denmark. I didn't know Christian played, to be honest. I always think of Paulson and Loudrup, but it's just kind of, yeah. So I didn't know much about him before the game against the Danes, blah, blah, blah. And he's just kind of rambling. Igor Kolivanov, likewise, for the CS. 
they're really volatile for Germany, who was a great player. Um, but yeah, those two kind of stood out, Christensen and Kolovarov, because you could imagine a conversation. Yeah, just put anything for those. <laughs> but it also shows the quality of forward, you know. The fact Papan went to Milan, could barely get a game, obviously because of Ambaston, but I mean, there were, there were some amazing forwards around. So Brolin has obviously become a joke in England in particular, which I always think is a bit harsh because before, certainly before he went to Leeds around 1992 and 94 in particular, when they got to the semis, yeah, just a brilliant player, fantastic player. I don't really think the rest are goal scorers really, whereas Brolin, you think of more as a kind of number 10, um, but still a fantastic footballer, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so had his day against England in this tournament, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, amazing goal, wasn't it? Um, yeah, that game was interesting because in the end you couldn't argue and were kind of well beaten 2-1, but it was a game that kind of either both teams had to win or maybe Sweden could have drawn, I forget, England had to win anyway. Um, but actually they were 1-0 up at half-time and played really well. Platt scored and admittedly got a lucky goal, mishit it, but then they missed two or three really good chances uh, Tony Daly in particular was one of Taylor's wild cards. Um, so, it's, like I said earlier, it's really interesting. England remembered as an absolute shambles at this tournament, partially with good reason. And yet, if they take one of those chances and go 2 0 up, they'll probably go through to the semi finals in the Euros, which, you know, they hardly ever get to, certainly outside England. Um, so, yeah, fine margins and all that. But it was the, the winning goal is beautiful, isn't it? The Brodin, Darlene Brodin won two, and then that kind of flipped. Finish past Chris Woods is so good. Yeah. And again, it, with this double page, we spoke about it right from the start. It's a lot of filler on the page, a lot of yeah. gaps, a lot of not very, not a great deal of text. And that's you know, again, I come back to it. the 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 amount of information and in articles and text in this mag this magazine this particular isn't great. And and again, it's 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 showing there that. You know, Rudy Voller's got the least amount of text. And, <laughs> yeah. And you think, you know, you could at least get to the bottom of the page for each person, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Voller in particular. I'd love to know kind of the whole process, how it came about. Because um, you're right, it feels like a five-minute chat that someone's had to work very hard to turn into a double-page spread. Mm. But who knows? I mean, I think, so what's on there probably could have been done before the tournament, really? I don't know. That yeah, exactly. I, I suspect it's to do with the fact they don't know, but the time the magazine comes out, the semi-finalists have decided, so they kind of try to cover all bases. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. All right, we'll move, we'll move on. I'm aware of time, so we'll kind of maybe sort of breeze through uh, some of this. So um, we'll not linger too long on the history of the European Championship, but this is obviously a, a multiple-part series. This is a part six Magnifique Michelle, where it looks at the 1984 tournament. And sorry, uh, on Tom, the right sorry Tom, you say part six, but it actually does say part V1. <laughs> oh, part V1. <laughs> yeah. yeah, part six. Uh, and uh, another advert, El Primo del Mondo. This is um, uh, Adidas uh, football boots. Get into the boot, the world's, the world's best shoes. The world's best, get into the boot, the world's best shoes. Uh, and it's forty now, only forty nine ninety nine. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about these. Um, they don't look like. I love um, red. I've got something about red studs, red nylon studs, and I think it harks back to the seventy eight World Cup boots, um, which just with the red studs look magnificent. But 
I don't know that I like. So it's got the three stripes down the side, white stripes for Adidas. Um, but it's there's a black. It's cut with a a black stripe all the way through it as well. So it's not three continuous white stripes. And I I don't know that I. I mean it's it's just the aesthetics of it, isn't it? But I don't know that that works for me. No, I agree. When I first looked at it, you kind of know it's only Adidas or Adidas, but I wasn't entirely certain because of the way it folded around mm. and it was a break in between. So you had to kind of, and there's no obvious thing on the tongue either. So yeah, I wasn't entirely sure. I, I liked it. A lot of technical details in that advert as well, about the studs and various things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're telling you it's reduced from 1899. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's telling you something. Well, I mean that—that's—that's that's what you would you play pay roughly that maybe a bit more for a pair of World Cup, you know, Adidas World Cup or um, what's the other ones? But I can't remember the other Adidas ones. But that's roughly what you would pay nowadays. So you can imagine what ninety quid was worth back. Yeah, then. that's yeah. Stick to the Woolworths. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Going over again. So will we skip over Ray of the Rangers? We can do, but um, I, I tweeted this out today to both Tony Husband and Steve McGarry, who are the the owners of this this um, this feature. Um, I mean, we've had Steve McGarry on before, and he spoke about how he started this one, Ray of the Rangers, and then he had other stuff to do, really, so he brought Tony Husband on board to sort of take over. Um, you know, it's... You know what I'm like with it when it comes to... Um, comic stuff in the magazines but I quite like quite like this so maybe yeah. I'm just biased because you know I think Steve McGarry is a god so there we go even though it's probably Tony Husband's work he's <laughs> also a god if you're listening to this Tony <laughs> and facing page it's a competition win a signed England football plus enough Mars bars to keep Gaza happy Unbelievable. actually a very happy Paul Gascoigne probably during the 1990 World Cup and uh, is that Danny Baker with the England? Yeah, I was going to ask you. I think it is, but it I is. don't know what the context yeah, is. So, so the competition is you have to name all the England players in the in the photo. Um, and I think it was taken at a the filming of an advert for Mars Mars. Um, so that that's the context of that. But that's that's a competition. Name all the England players. I think there's ten of them, and then win forty eight Mars bars. It's <laughs> it's just the idea of. Um, you know, the, the strap line is enough Mars bars to keep guys a happy. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it was that period where it was, I wouldn't say acceptable, but it wasn't unacceptable to to have a, a dodgy diet and, you know, and still be a professional footballer as long as you had the ability. Yeah. All right, going over the, the page again, again here. So this is my feature on Roy, Roy Wegley. And uh, right said Roy, I'm too tricky for England, which was a, a pun on a popular band and popular hit of around about that time. Yeah. So it's a stretch, isn't it? Yeah. Right, said Fred, I'm too sexy. But also because it's about a year since that song was in the charts. Yeah. So it's a bit of a stretch, but yeah, anyway. Well, they're going on the other page, to another sort of the Wild Rover as well. So they're going for all the, the old song puns. <laughs> and then they've used the same photograph of them five times. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't notice uh-huh. the other page. So, so on the left hand page, this is this is a big bugbear of mine. Is um, people um, stretching, skewing photographs. 
So this one is a photograph of Roy Wegley up against um, Ray Houghton. Ray Houghton, yeah. And um, they've, they've basically used a third of the page, but they've they've changed the height and not kept the width at the same perspective. So the, it's, it, it looks really, really unprofessional. Um, I, I wouldn't even say unprofessional. It's just wrong. I mean, if I saw this done in a, a school magazine or a, a, a football club programme, for example, Tom, then I would, I would um, absolutely say the same thing. So it's just, yeah, it's 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 really bad form for me. But yeah, I, yeah, I never noticed the three on the other side in the same way that they had the three England badges. They've got yeah. three pictures as well. So yeah, you're spot on. They're using that photograph five times over two pages. What do you think of Wegley's shorts? I guess it's the US. Yeah, mm. I quite like them actually. I've never seen those, which is the whole three stripe yeah. Adidas, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind that at all. But Roy Roy, Roy Wegley was he not like um, was I not talking? I'm also playing for Scotland as well. Was was that I think right? yeah? Doesn't it say he was eligible for about eight different countries mm-hmm. for various reasons? Oh yeah, it's got Scotland down there as well. Um, his mother's birthplace. Yeah, but it's interesting. Though, so the article was about him um, choosing America and not being part of the England squad. But it said uh, it got as far as a B squad call up. Instead, he opted to play for the US birthplace of his wife, Marie. Now, I don't know. I, I know the qualification for countries is uh, pretty, you know, patchy at times, but, I, I, you know, I don't know if you can play for the country that you're with. <laughs> so I guess that's just an aside and not actually the reason why he qualified to play for America. But, yeah, what do you make of the, the Blackburn Rovers shirt he's in there? I mean, obviously, it's a traditional sort of half and half, white and blue, but... It was like a slightly lighter blue than usual. Lighter blue, yeah. And, and obviously McEwen stands out as well, McEwen's lager, but yeah. Oh, yeah, it was a decent kid. Yeah, so he, he would have been part of them, their team right at the start of the whole Premier League year, wouldn't he? I don't think he was there by the time they won the league, but yeah. I guess Shearer, Shearer kind of blew everyone away, all the other forwards who were there. And uh, down below that, again, we've got another Adidas advert. So uh, again, football boots that look much like the ones that we've seen. Adidas... Etrusco Unico. Oh, it's the same ones. It's exactly yeah. the same ones, yeah. They're now thirty nine ninety nine. Yeah. If you, if you just keep reading on, they'll be twenty nine ninety nine in a couple of pages. <laughs> they're a ten or cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a quite horrific tracksuit. Uh, it's a black and with green and purple and white flashes. Very as well. That's not a footballer, is it? Is it just some random? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think so. I think random so. guy. So over the page again, we'll kind of. Skim over this. This is a big double page on Richard Goff, born in Sweden, raised in South Africa, but Goff insists, I'm proud to be a Scotsman. So we spoke about Richard Goff before, and again, another picture of him, a commanding header uh, with an elbow for, elbow for balance. <laughs> uh, anything to say about these two pages? I'm, I'm just, you know, it, it goes through his five goals, is it? Oh, no, um, six goals for Scotland at that point, and two of them against Cyprus which are obviously quite um, quite memorable for Scottish fans who were around at that sort of time that it was yeah, uh, he scored the winner in South, and it was in about six minutes at injury time which at the time was quite excessive yeah. and uh, of course you know to not beat Cyprus was an embarrassment at the time but I uh, scored mm. the winner late on and one, one, one of those one of those um, times that you actually got to watch a, a, a Scot- an international football game whilst in school with the wheel in the TV, 
Um, so that was, you know, that made it doubly memorable for that. Yeah, and of course, the famous goal he scored against England as well mm. in 1985. Uh, all right, okay, so uh, moving over to Shoot Mart. <laughs> Any adverts you want to pick out here, Rob? <laughs> well, <laughs> the one that said it's probably too late now is Build Muscles Fast. Um, muscle and fitness way, yeah. You forgot about all these strange little adverts. I, I can't even see beyond that, to be honest, but it's just a, a drawing of some guy looking like um, Rambo flexing his muscles. Um, you think, like, how does that work in a football magazine? Mm. And then it's just all the other stuff, play by mail. I don't know you've spoken about that before. Um, yeah, just, yeah, even there's a pen pals one, isn't there? What's it say? Pen pals mag for lonely people. Approved copy from matchmaker, Chorley Lancashire. I, mean, I have no idea what that entails, but um, yeah. And then jokes free as well. There's a jokes, joke catalogue. Britain's number one jokes catalogue. Mixed with over 800 practical jokes from 20p. It's just, it's a completely different world, isn't it? Mm. I don't know what the modern equivalent of this is, but I guess there isn't one. Um, well, I mean, you would see this in Viz nowadays, wouldn't you? That's where you would see a piece yeah, that looks yeah, like this. Yeah, that's true. Um, but the, the the muscles one that you point out there, that, that's that been in every single magazine <laughs> that I've seen from the late 50s, and it's probably the same drawing that's in it as well so, so what are you supposed to do what what does that actually it'll be a, it'll probably be a bull worker you know that you you press in oh yeah, yeah probably yeah, okay. to yeah. one of those and um, the one i want to point out is that football trivia quiz down in the bottom in the middle um and it's the bottom of that it says naughty naughty trivia quiz and it says i'm going to try test your sexuologicality <laughs> sexuologicality i mean it's, is that even a word Sexual it is now. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it is. Though. I mean, it's like they've just thrown three different words there together and say, "Aye, that'll do." But that's the one from there. Uh, yeah, as you say, <laughs> the play-by-mail. There's a Soccer Supremos three and the football director, which was um, brilliant. And we had the, the Rangers shop, three different locations in Glasgow, uh, at Ibrooks, then Trongate, and St Vincent Street as well. Mm. Uh, all right, move on. So here we go. So this is a two-page spread. Cut it out. Soccer reacts as FIFA outlaws the back pass. Now, so to ask a number of players for their opinion on the new uh, back pass law, I'm just going over some of the people they've asked. Uh, Jerry Craney, Celtic striker. Bruce, Bruce Grobelar, the Liverpool goalkeeper. Roger Milford, referee. Ken Moncow, Chelsea defender. Neville Southall, Everton goalkeeper. Lawrence Batty, the Woking goalkeeper. Uh, any reason why you think they've asked the Woking goalkeeper for his opinion? <laughs> I don't, but his quotes are fantastic. He um, he says, it also means goalies will have to work on outfit skills to dribble their way out of trouble. Those with a good touch, like me, will be all right. But others are elephants away from the goal. <laughs> and there are going to be some comical scenes as everyone tries to get used to it. <laughs> I mean, I looked, I looked him up in the hope he'd, you know, Ended up becoming an outfield player, scored 50 goals a season in some far-flung country. But it looks like he stayed as a keeper and then became a goalkeeping coach. I don't know whether that's tongue-in-cheek or not, but it, yeah, either way, it's quite entertaining. Um, yeah, and I thought it was interesting also that Ken Moncow said about, um, at least it won't be any repeat, it was a tremendous own goal I scored when we played Scarborough in the League Cup a couple of years ago when I tried to back pass from the halfway line. I think at that stage, there was so much kind of confusion and panic. People thought, the players wouldn't pass the ball back, um, even though he still could. And obviously, the goalkeepers clear it, or as they do now, 
just control it and play it out. Um, there was like such a moral panic. It was like the end of, I, and I remember that. I'd love to know my own logic, but I remember at the time thinking it was an outrage. This can't happen. This is wrong. <laughs> um, in fact, as I think you said before, it's one of the best things happened to football in our lifetime. Yep. Um, but at the time, there was there was so much of a panic and an outrage. Um, I think, yeah, like anything, I guess, like shocker than you and all that. But yeah, it turned out, I think it took a few months to settle down, didn't it? I always remember the Serie A scores being absolutely hilarious at the time because it was the best league in the world, but it was still pretty defensive and quite low scoring. And the first few weeks, you'd have like a 7-3 and a 5-4 and a 4-all, 3-all. And it was clearly blind panic. It's kind of the, the, the greatest tool that they had was taken away from them. And then it kind of settles down as you get into November and December. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting to get the range of opinions. Um, I don't know how you felt at the time, but I vividly remember thinking it was a really poor decision and I was glad Sam was completely wrong. I think, I mean, I was still playing, you know, still playing. I mean, I was only in my early 20s, but I remember just thinking, well, it's a rule change and just have to deal with it. And, and, and I don't know that I thought um, anything bad about it. I mean, obviously, when anybody who wasn't around or can remember football back then, and when they see, you know, the big match or even highlights from the World Cups and that, and they see players just passing right back to the goalkeeper, and they're like, what, what are they doing? What are they doing? Yeah, they can't, they and the can't... Keeper, keeper always pats it forward, doesn't yeah. he? So he's not picking it up, so therefore he's not eating he into his however many seconds it was. And it, it, it just... With that hindsight, it's like why on earth, why on earth was that allowed? Or obviously the game developed into that. It, you know, I, I, it must have been okay at some point. I don't remember it being that bad, and then suddenly it was. It was a tactical thing, um, which just but, killed the game. But I suppose as football generally became more cynical in a lot of ways, mm. it became. I mean, that's the easiest way, isn't it? If you think now, if you wanted to. The equivalent of obviously keeping by the corner flag, you could just kill 10 minutes of a game so easily um, if you were allowed to pass the ball back and pick it up. And so, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely essential, really. And it's changed the way football has, has developed. But you're right, actually, it's a really fertile period for football improving. Um, the tackle from behind being outlawed eventually. Um, and obviously, it all stems back to Italian 90. But yeah. A lot of what we watch now, the, the kind of best stuff we watch now, you can trace back to this, I think. Mm. Even yeah. down to things like the way, you know, Man City play or the way Barcelona played or Liverpool. I think it does all, it takes time for everything to kind of have its full impact. But I think we're kind of, you can definitely trace a link between them. Yeah. The the, the one thing I've, I've, and it's goalkeeper related again, the one thing I, I, I really want, to, and I don't know how we do it, but this idea, this way that goalkeepers when they when they get the ball and they, they catch it and then they fall forward, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And it's as if and it's and it's again it's blatant time wasting, and that you know that's part of the reason why this rule was introduced is was to to you know to get that out of the game, and I think that's going to be one of the things. Maybe it doesn't annoy people, other people as much as it annoys me, but that that's one of the things that just drives me mad with, with the game at the moment. It's like, just get up. <laughs> I hate it. Well, yeah, but there's always the, the, these wee things that they use, you know, um, like when they change the, the rule about um, goal kicks, 
you know, when the ball went past the left-hand side of the post, you had to take mm. it from the left-hand yeah, side. Yeah. And then they changed that to make the game quicker. It just take it from any side. But now goalkeepers just use that to waste time. They'll pick the ball up for the left-hand side and then go over it on the right to take the goal kick. You know, yeah. They'll always find a way to use it to to waste waste time or, you know, when it was brought in, it speed things up. Mm. Just have a look at some of the, the comments. Uh, Bruce Grobola. Uh, every year they come up with a new rule and it's always one that affects goalkeepers. It's a specialised position and we're getting hemmed in. How about making one that affects everyone else for a change? I used to be able to catch the ball, dribble it and play basketball before getting rid of it. <laughs> then came the four-step rule and the four-second rule forcing us to get rid of the ball quickly. Next thing, we'll be restricted to the six-yard box alone and they'll want to make the goals bigger. Yeah, so Bruce Grobelar was, was always one of those players, one of those goalkeepers who would get caught out Trying to do, trying to dribble out for the box or do something yeah. crazy. I think Peter, Peter, the Peter Shreves one was probably the, the most um, constructive and the, the best one for me because he's saying when I was a youth coach at Spurs, we did that in practice games. That was a rule. And, you know, to encourage defenders to actually take control of a situation and not just rely on passing it back to the goalkeeper. So, you know forward thinking from there and didn't you have an episode where you found Coventry were talking about yeah in central league game reserve games not yeah. not playing back passes at all which I thought was really interesting and I've not heard that at all before yeah. and that would have been like 10 years before this I think yeah it was yeah, yeah. it was uh, Peter Shelton who was then the Plymouth player manager uh, I made a similar suggestion five years ago and I'm glad to see a change but they have made one mistake the back pass should be allowed inside the penalty area, but it takes a bit of skill to knock the ball back to the keeper. After all, the whole point is to prevent time wasting with back passes from 40 yards. Sometimes changes are made that aren't in the best interest of the game. They never seem to talk to the players about them. Do you know, I can I can sort of see his logic a wee bit with that. Um, and that the, the issue was mainly from outside the box, but it, it really has made the game better the the fact that the, you can't pass back from anywhere um, yeah I, it, there's no downside is there even you still even get the kind of comedy back passes to go wrong um, yeah there's no downside to it as yeah. far as I can see yeah alright let's move on then we're getting close to the end of the magazine now so over the page again some more adverts well yeah more adverts this is Adidas coaching, Co Coerver coach, the world's number one soccer teaching method. Uh, is this something you were aware of, Andy? You know, you were talking about. Well, we, we've we've spoken about this a few times, and um, we've discussed this. And um, Gordon Smart, if you remember, was actually a coach on on these courses when he was in London. So he was talking about that how how he he knew Charlie Cook. I don't know. I'm assuming he knew Alfred Gullistein as well. But yeah, we, we spoke about that in some detail before um, and then again when, when Gordon came on. I didn't know Dale Gordon was involved in it, but I guess it's the sort of thing that, you know, through the years they, they got more players involved just to, to increase the 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 reach and the the status of it. Hey Rob, did you ever go on any coaching courses? <laughs> no, I, I'd love to. I was at Bobby Charlton Soccer School with David Beckham, but no, no, nothing like that. Yeah, it's interesting seeing this. I kind of forgot all about these little kind of clips, and they look, it all looks fairly basic now, you know, try and miss the first man or whatever. But actually, I guess when you're 
a teenager, all this stuff genuinely is quite valuable. It's stuff you don't really specifically think about. So, yeah, yeah, it's all, all good. Yeah, totally. And there's pictures there of Dale Gordon training, coaching on the Ibrooks pitch as well. And actually, I quite like the, um, talking about tops, the Adidas top, the lad, the picture at the bottom, the lad on the right is wearing. Mm. Um, yeah, quite, it's kind of a, a mishmash of all the various yeah. Adidas things going on at that point. So you've got the stripes over the shoulder, you've also got the classic uh, logo. Yeah, I quite like that. Yeah. All right. And then getting to the end of the magazine, left-hand side of the page, Curl's Main Road Pledge, I'll Never Quit City. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith Curley we saw earlier on in England kit this is him in his Manchester City strip um, hitting out against the rumour mongers who are out to wreck his main his main road love affair yeah, they'd have to kick me out first he insists I mean how, how many times do we hear that from players I'll never leave <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah yeah spoiler alert three months later yeah, yeah. no in that case I think he stayed for quite a while but but you're right it's um, yeah those kind of stories are so common. And Shoot mentioned that from England's base in Sweden, uh, the former Wimbledon skipper told Shoot. So just getting in that they were speaking to him. <laughs> yeah. And uh, over, over there uh, next week, in the uh, so we'll have all the agony and the ecstasy, all the action and all the verdicts taken from this Sunday's Stockholm semi-final. And I've managed to a picture of a disconsolate Chris model. <laughs> From missing yeah, that they're, they're not they're not holding out much hope at this point. <laughs> you think let's have an England celebration at this one? Uh, so uh, over the page again. So we've got chief executive of the FA's new Premier League, Rick Parry, and uh, he's facing questions from shoot leaders. Uh, Rob, have you picked out any questions that uh, Rick Parry's answered to you? Yeah, probably just a bit where. It's kind of an obvious broken promise where he says there's no way we'll ask a team to play on Monday and Wednesday. <laughs> what happened the, the season before this? Man United, they hadn't lost the league because we had been played four games in seven days and lost three of them. No, hang on. Four games in seven days and lost two of them. But anyway, it cost them a league. But it didn't, it, it arguably didn't cost them a league, so we're going to collapse anyway. So the whole idea, one of the selling points of the Premier League was this will never happen again. And of course, it did happen again. Um, so yeah, that kind of stood out a little bit, um, and just just all, all the kind of stuff. Same with all these things, the kind of rhetoric that's never kind of followed through on, you know, international football being the priority and everything else. Um, you look at it now, we're kind of thirty years distant, and it just so much of it looks just really hollow. And you wonder at the time in his head how honest he was being. I suspect he genuinely thought these things would never happen again. But then as time goes on, you kind of compromise and you compromise a bit more, you compromise a bit more. Um, but yeah, just I felt a bit kind of sad reading it in a way because I remembered the kind of goodwill towards Premier League generally, not not everywhere, but the, the kind of optimism around it. And you think actually it's just, you know, it's a brilliant league. There's so much to admire about the actual football, but all the stuff around it, the kind of stuff he talks about here, um, kind of stinks a little bit. And yeah, it's quite sad to read about this is kind of the brochure, really, um, and it kind of didn't follow through on that. Yeah, I, I, I think over the years, there's, there's scope for it to be still brilliant and entertaining and stuff, mm. but not quite as great. I mean, that, that quote there, yes, we want to make more money so we can pump it back into the game. That doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly. It's a pittance that goes back into it. And it's like, you think, 
with the amount of money that's there, the the, the good that that could do lower down in the game. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, without without affecting the 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 top part that much. Yeah, it's the same with so much of society, I guess. Mm. But you, yeah, I completely agree. I, I but yeah, I wonder how they felt at the time. Did they genuinely? I don't know. Was it a conscious land grab? Was it an unconscious? Land? I, I, yeah, I really don't know. Um, but you read this and you just think, yeah, pretty much none of this has been followed through on. And I'd love to wave that quote. There's no way we'll ask him to play on Monday and Wednesday see what kind of Guardiola Klopp or whoever would um, say about that. All the stuff's gone in the last couple of years. Mm. But even before then, it was kind of happening. There were four games in a week for certain teams and stuff. So, yeah. All right, so we're closing the magazine then. And the back page is uh, a picture from UEFA 92 of uh, Jocelyn Anglomar of France and Anders, Anders Limpar of Sweden. Uh, Jocelyn for the ball. Jocelyn for the ball. Is that, that deliberate? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, both in the, sort of the classic Adidas kits of the time with the, the uh, stripes at the corner. The shorts, the Sweden shorts look. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that again. I really like those actually. Then mm. they had this, this stripe effect on the shorts. Particularly when it's on the, the shirt on the other side, so it's kind of like a almost like an invisible stripe across the the rest of the body. I like that. It just looking at it screams out to me. Anders Anders Limpar's um, shin guard there. It just looks. Oh my if, god! Yeah. If it is even that, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's thin, very thin. It almost looks as though it may just be tape that's that's on his shin. So, but then again, there's tape around the bottom to hold it up. Uh, yeah, that that looks remarkable. It just shows you how thin those socks are as well, I guess. That's extraordinary. I hadn't noticed that at all. It's barely more than an ice lolly stick, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. just amazing, though. It's barely, obviously, it's covering the shin bone, but there's like no protection to the side. Mm. Mm. Great strip, so, yep. All right, so back to you, Andy. Okay. Um, thank, thanks, Rob, for, for sitting through this with us. Um, what, what's happening with yourself at the moment? What What's... What are you working on? Um, uh, yeah, just usual stuff, really. Um, yeah, I've nothing much to say, really. Just uh, yeah, usual kind of day-to-day stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm eventually one of these days going to write a book about the um, Arsenal-Man United rivalry, the kind of Wenger-Ferguson era, but also going back a bit before that, so the genesis of it from kind of 1983. Uh, but, but yeah, mainly just day-to-day stuff. Well, so yeah, I've, I've read some of that uh, recently, but I've read it on your Substack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we just started with a couple of mates, mainly just to, yeah, try and kind of push us to do a few more historical bits that we enjoy. That I do, I, I, I've always quite enjoyed writing kind of longer stuff, just a bit richer in detail, you know, a bit more, probably a bit more indulgent, but I quite like looking at kind of long form stories of, I don't know whether it's that or. You know, Denmark in the 80s or Sampdoria in 91, whatever. Yeah, I always enjoy stuff like that. Yeah. So the, the books that you've done, um, where's where the best place for people to find them? Um, probably, as someone said, I think on your pod, the worst place in the world, Amazon probably. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just anywhere really, uh, Waterstones or whatever, or A Books is always good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can find online. I, w- I was reading a, an article, um, it was an interview with you, and it's suggested that 
I mean, I, I, I'm I'm not a big cricket fan or anything like that. But it's, you you are a big cricket fan. Would you say you're a bigger cricket fan than you are a football fan still? I would say probably more now, but not kind of historically. I think when I was growing up, it was kind of maybe like 60, 40, 70, 30. I think just because so much of modern football is fairly abhorrent, not mm-hmm. the actual football itself that much. Um, cricket's kind of still a little bit more pure is not the right word, but you know what I mean. So yeah, pro- I probably fully modern cricket more keenly than modern football, I would say. Mm. No, that, 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 when I read about your, your thoughts behind that, um, that, that struck a, a chord with me. You know, it was like the, the sort of comments that you get on a football thread is yeah. a lot more vitriolic and just depressing. But then um, you lose yourself in the actual game. I always remember um, just before Christmas, I was doing a live blog on Spurs-Liverpool, the game that ended, I think, 2 all. And at half time, I just thought there's so much to dislike about modern football that you watch a half like that, you lose yourself in it, and you just you're 12 years old again. Mm-hmm. It's just always got that power, um, yeah. Which is why I guess it's so great. But but yeah, I, I do think that the kind of discourse is a lot. Kind of, it's not perfect for cricket at all. I think it's kind of getting a bit worse. Actually, a bit more. You know, England are not very good at the moment, and so they're getting a bit more entitled and everything else. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, you get kind of less. Less, and it's not just abuse, it's not even just abuse, it's just, um, yeah, probably that kind of entitled, just that it's just really incessant entitled, which would be brilliant. On it, I always feel like if you take, say, 20 teams in England, if you ask each the fans of each club where they should be, where they should actually be, where they should perform, like, no one's getting relegated, five teams are in the league every year. Just, it's, and I know it was always like that to an extent, but I think it, it's becoming less realistic and there's less kind of empathy towards the the challenge of modern sport, I guess. Mm. And it's, I don't know, I just find that a bit boring sometimes. But the actual sport itself, particularly the kind of highest level, is still so good. Yeah. In fact, it's not even just the highest level. It's just sometimes you can watch a match where the kind of mood catches or whatever. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's still so great. And answer a question from you. Do you do social media? Are you on Twitter? Because I have followed a few links that said 100 Ashes quotes, is it? And, oh, um, no, that was for a book ages ago, yeah. Um, so there's one at the moment for the Substack, but it's more like a general thing. It's net to 72, so it's NTZR72, um, which is designed so that people will forget it and they won't be able to find us and we can just kind of occasionally put a few links up and, right. yeah. But yeah, I kind of, I always, I kind of have a on-off relationship with Twitter. I kind of regret it when I'm on it, regret it when I'm not, um, and yeah, kind of worry about whether I should be. But at the moment, I don't have like a personal account. No. Okay, great stuff. People um, can subscribe to you. Substack. Oh yeah, it's the same. It's um, what is it? It's, yeah, it's net to ntzr dot substack dot com. Um, yeah. So mainly at the moment, it's just historical stuff but i think we're going to try eventually if we can ever get in the same room um try and kind of plan and do a few yeah current bits as well maybe cricket modern football i don't know but we'll see okay i'm, I'm going to throw it out um i've just said that idea tom for a for a future show and if you're up for it rob i think it would be good if we do a future um breakdown of a uh, shot at glory <laughs> um, i'd love to i'd absolutely love to yeah. okay let's do that oh. A what, what's it called these days? A watch party? Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've never done a watch party, but I'd be happy to try, yeah. Hey, okay, let, let, let's let's sort that out. Listen, thank you again for, for taking the time, and we hope you, you enjoyed the magazine that we, we, we chose for you, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was great fun, thank you.
Okay, um, thanks to everyone for listening. As always, follow us on shoottb underscore podcast. Tell your friends about us. Listen to the, the, the shows that have gone on before. And thank you to Tom, as always, for being Tom. Thank you, Andy. And until the next time, let's shoot the breeze. <laughs>